I'm over here now. I was over there. Now I'm over here. Sure. I'll bring all my shoes and my, my glasses with me. So I have them. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with the OGs on the block to see the terror Eating pasta primavera, feeding caca be together People never know the wild shit we might say Grew up on Eddie Murphy, Jerky Boys and Dice Play. I've been waking up nights screaming Brooklyn Blast podcast Mama took my porn mags, jerkins and a soft rags Easy when we talk about Mr. Ferrari Cause we go way back when we used to play Atari Sparked weed, taking shots like the Fratelli's RV Doing donuts in the parking lot at Arby's Car keys, now you can't leave, lock the door Please, Jimmy's on a mission. Time to start the intervention. Let's go. Episode 202 of the Brooklyn Blast Furnace podcast with my guest, the legendary Neil Turbin. Now we can go through Anthrax, Death Riders, Bleed the Hunger, uh, Neil Turbin Eastlos, Screaming Soul Demon, Metal Hall of Fame. Which we didn't just speak about for a long time before we pressed record. Um, Jesus Christ, man. Uh, first of all, how you been? What's going on? How's California treating you? And all of that. Well, thanks for having me on board, Jimmy. And uh, Anytime. Know, the pleasure is all mine, Neil. And happy, you know, cheers to everyone out there and uh, all the listeners there of Brooklyn Blast Furnace and all of your fans and all of your followers. Thank you. Everyone out there. And, um, you know, we're here right on the, right on the cusp of 2020 and 2021. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of things happening. A lot of things that have happened. And, yeah. And to say the very things, least. Yeah. And a lot of things yet to happen that haven't been, uh, seen or revealed yet. So I guess we're going to find out a lot of things, but. Yeah. Strap in kids. Cause it could be, I don't know, man. It's, it's, I mean, we're on podcast time right now. This isn't going to come out for a little bit, but right now, this is we're talking on New Year's Eve, and tomorrow is 2021. You know, uh, I hope things change, <laughs> but uh, for the better. But who knows, man? Who knows? It's we could only just out there. No doubt, it's a bumpy road, and no doubt that there'll be some other bumps in the way. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we just got to hold on and navigate around it somehow. And uh, you know, support each other. I mean, it's all about supporting our 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 brothers, our sisters, our family, our people. You know, yeah. as a community, we're family. It's like we're we're a family, even though people have different likes or dislikes. I mean, not everybody appreciates the arts. Not everybody supports the arts or loves music. You know, I think it's a time where, no matter what music you like, it's really a time to come together and support the arts because. Really, all the arts are be, are under attack. You know, they're they're not. You know, the Rolling Stones they lost a billion dollars from not touring. So, yeah. so if that if they could do that to the Stones, then you know, who am I? You know, we're we're small potatoes compared to a big operator. Oh, yeah, we're nobody. We we're just we're just uh, little army ants, little little disposal. Like we we they don't even acknowledge us. You know what I mean? At least yeah. me. It's like you know when Metallica you know, it doesn't really have gigs and they're doing live streams. I mean, they yeah. could do gigs, but you know, I mean, Kiss is doing that big gig in Dubai. That's crazy. That's, I mean, that's crazy. crazy. I think it's amazing that they can, uh, they can do something like that. It's, it's, uh, you know, I know someone who's attending that and for $2,000 worth of airfare and probably 
5,000 for tickets or you know, merch, merch. And, you know, if you want to buy a soda and then, uh, you know, you're traveling to the, the Middle East, the, the Emirates yeah, and, and to book Dubai. And, uh, you know, it's just not something that the average, uh, Rock and roll or heavy metal fan can, can no, no, not at all, man. I'm gonna go fly to Dubai to go see Kiss. That's like insane. That's insane. Well, I mean, it's thousands and thousands of dollars, but it'll be it'll be packed. Yeah, it'll be a great show, and I'm sure people will love it. But you know, I mean, I saw Kiss, you know, Kiss Alive two live at Madison Square Garden, so it's gonna be hard to beat that for me. Really? Yeah, and I saw them uh, a number of other times. You know, with makeup, without makeup you know, all that kind of stuff during those, those years. And, and then later on a great band and, you know, obviously coming from New York myself, you know, someone, a, a, a group I looked up to. Sure. But uh, just the fact that they're still doing something, that's great. And obviously they're, they're very established, you know, so when you have the business behind you, you're very established. Well, you know, you have those, those connections, you have those people behind you, you have the money behind you. But for bands that are just trying to, you know, stay afloat, that are not Kiss, that are not, you know, that are known, yeah. that are not, uh, you know, they don't have that kind of backing from a business yeah. standpoint, and they don't have that, you know, that kind of following. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, and that's most bands, you know, most bands are not Kiss or the Rolling Stones, and, and they don't have the, the options and the luxury of, of having opportunities you know here would you like this opportunity or that opportunity would you like to do a live stream yeah on new year's eve or would you like to go which they did or would you like to do uh you know go play in dubai and yeah they're going to dubai and it'll be packed because they're kiss yeah and there's countries where they have they have a more relaxed uh scenario where yeah places where that can be done but i feel like um you know what about everybody else because that's that's the people that's the core of of us you know of course us versus them kind of thing and, and the us is is you know the metal fans yeah like metal fans would go to venues and they go and you know get in the pit they get there and yeah want to be part of it they want to get a t-shirt they want to remember the event they want to meet the people or talk to them and get a chance to i mean this is part of what we do of we were course. talking earlier about how you know it's weird for kids who are you know in a, in a school situation where yeah. depending on where you are you know the interesting thing is that it's okay and you know i know you're in new york and i'm in la probably the two not the best places to be for no not at all but you know imagine going to school as a kid and okay it's okay for like eight-year-olds to go to school and sit next to each other and be in a classroom all day yeah it's not okay to go to a restaurant and have something to eat oh it's it's with a mask it's it's batshit crazy. I say I say it all the time. It's like okay, because right now there is no indoor dining right now in New York. Can't yeah, happen. Can you have outdoor dining? Yeah, that's going to work in a blizzard, right? Right. Um, but it, but it's crazy because now there's like there's like legitimate like specs and like there's certain permits and certain specifications that you need to have for your outside dining. So you need like certain electrical codes met. You need all kinds of things met. You need heaters. You need basically at the end of the day, it's basically you're eating in an enclosed hut outside. So it's really indoor dining outside. You're just basically coming out of the main restaurant and eating in a small outhouse version 
outside. But and, and you can, you don't have to wear a mask. But when you're back in the restaurant, you have to wear your mask to the table. But you can have a party of twelve. Take your mask off, and you can all talk, and everything is fine. But if you get up to go use the bathroom, you have to have your mask on, or else you'll be a dead man because the virus has manners. You know, the virus is is the um, you know kind of like one of those fans that want to you know run up to a you know a celebrity to get an autograph. You know what I mean? They won't go up to you, you know, when, when you're eating with your family. But when you get up to use the bathroom, that's when they pounce. That's like the virus. That's what it does. It's very smart, but they don't know too much about it. You know? That's yeah, uh it's quite <laughs> quite fascinating how people will believe things and, and what they want to believe, what they choose to believe based on what information and how it's presented. But sure. You know, I guess we probably don't want to dig into that because it's <laughs> no. not advisable for unless you no. want to stand on every social media platform because exactly all the censorship that's happening because yeah. of this uh, area because of the yeah, light it's crazy. So we'll we'll keep it lighthearted. We're not going to go into that because everyone talks about it because I mean it is the elephant in the room. So it always comes up this whole thing because it's unprecedented times. I will say. But I think that you know the the question of the hour and of the moment is who's going to pay us back the time that they're taken from, you know, from your daughter from. From, from us, from our fans, from our, our friends, from our families, from ourselves, you know, from the Rolling Stones. Who's going who's gonna to pay back that time? Because nobody. You know what you got to do? You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. Well, what I'm saying is that, you know, they've created a fear yep. situation. So, and yeah, people will try to quantify the fear and say, oh, well, that fear is based on this rationale. Yeah. But, but their rationale is not it's not scientific. It's not concrete. And in fact, you know, I'm a very facts based facts oriented, you know, critical thinking type of person because I like to know the truth and I want to know the truth, even if it hurts, you know, I rather yeah. know, just tell me, just tell me what really is going on. Yeah. Not all this uh, fluff, you know, not the sugar coated stuff. And I guess that's an experience that happens when you move from uh, the East coast to New York and you come out to California where I came out, back in uh, 1985. So when I came out here in uh, Los Angeles, it was a bit of a culture shock to a in a sense, because I had been out here uh, a few times before. You know, of course, I came out here traveling on tour with Anthrax. I, I was out here before that when I was a kid. And what I didn't notice as much then, because I didn't have time to really think about it and learn about it so much, is... You know, one of the things that you, you see, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, Jimmy, and everybody that's there in Brooklyn and New York, <laughs> is, um, you know, hey, bro, <laughs> hey, cuz, uh -huh. and, and that's the East Coast. Yeah. But you never heard back in the 70s or 80s, you never heard, hey, dude, that no. was not the language of the New York way. That was not no. New York East, right? But out in California, hey, dude. Oh, that was, that was vernacular. Uh, Sure. Well, that, that, that's the front end of, of the whole perception of sugarcoating. It's like, hey, dude, like they don't want to tell you, hey, we, we didn't choose you. So you're not selected. We passed and we took someone else, you know, yeah. for whatever it is, a job interview for for your girlfriend, you know, like, oh, sorry, I chose this other guy who's got a nicer car, <laughs> right, et cetera. But it's like that. It's like you're not just going to get, well, no, this guy's 
No, I went out with Tony, man. He's cooler than you. So All right. <laughs> you, know, you don't you don't get a straight answer. And, and the thing that, that's good about New York and, and the people there is that, hey, you know, you don't have to like second guess it. It's like you're not happening, dude. That's it. Right. Yeah, bro. That's bro, right. bro, it ain't happening. Bro. <laughs> In California, you know, it's always been this kind of uh, subversive, non-direct you know, thing. And so to me, that's I like. I like to not waste time with going back and forth and trying to figure out what's really going on. And I think, right. you know, we're dealing in this society with a lot of cryptic information. And the thing that's great about the music business is people, well, usually people say stuff and it's really true, whether they're drunk or they just kind of said it in an interview and it gets blasted out there. And then the media or the, the music media will take it and, you know, look for a headline like, oh, he said this, you know. Oh, uh, completely out of context. It'll just be like one little snippet, of course. Of yeah, course. so they'll grab something constantly, turn it into like, hey, you know, there's a, they want to have a debate about, you know, like a, a back and forth with, oh, this guy said something about this band or that band or that person said it and get, you know, and that, that's good for the, the company that's, uh, sure, you know, doing the, the, the trying reporting to get or whatever. Get, get yeah. Likes or get hits or whatever, get views. Yeah, need those clicks, man. Need those clicks. But you see, it's funny. I didn't realize. I mean, how would I know? You said you've been in California since '85, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, you grew, you grew up in New York. What part of New York? Queens. I'm from, I'm from Brooklyn originally. Born in Brooklyn, but grew up in Queens. Brooklyn was not exactly a Disney World or Disneyland back then. So, oh hell no. I'm 45, so I remember vaguely. You know, when I I mean, listen, when I was nine, ten years old, we're talking mid '80s, and it was. You know, it was a fucking half a war zone. Yeah, I remember um, one day when when they did clean up, you know, Giuliani was mayor and they started cleaning up New York. Yeah. But there were still people that, you know, they probably let right out of Rikers and dropped them off right on 42nd or somewhere in that vicinity oh, sure. on, the upper, on the west side. And, you know, I'm, I'm standing there like when I was a kid, I used to love to go to Times Square and I wasn't. You know, people like, oh, yeah, let's go and look at the, the, the naked chicks and the sex and all that. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But what I was really interested in even more was looking at the martial arts movies. There you so go. They had the, yeah, they had all the Kung Fu movies in the oh, theaters. But these were bloody movies and they were and they had like these shops down there. And it was all this, um, you know, real um, martial arts type stuff. So I really dug it. And this is back around the, even before Anthrax, you know, I was going there and they had all this uh, cool you know these martial arts weapons and yeah so i go, so go and i watched this movie i was in uh, Times square and you know yeah they had all the sex shops and all that and you know i think i i think i went back down there years later with a family member we're there this is actually the story i wanted to tell and then i'll get back to the movie that's fine movie the well actually i'll just say the movie back when i was like 14 or 15 or something like that i was down there by myself taking the train in there. I had, I had some school project. Okay. So, so I had, I had to read this book and the damn book was like this <laughs> yeah. for, for a school project. And this is high school at some point. So I'm like, you know, first year of high school, 15 years old, something like that. So, um, I, I or 16, I, I was just like, okay, I didn't read the fucking book <laughs> because I didn't get it. I didn't get it done in time. I of just, course not. It wasn't enough time. No, you don't have time to that. You don't I have any time. Movie, I had a movie about the book. There you go. And that's the way I thought about it. It's like, screw this book. I'm just going to go see the movie. Right. Of course. Like any yeah. normal person back then would. And I would do this to this day. 
I'm from New York, so that's what New Yorkers do. They go see the movie and read the book later. Yeah. Time for all this bullshit. You know, right, there's no time. The bus and all the stuff. Right. You're in the bus and again, and you got to walk and wait for <laughs> it. And but who got all this time to read a book? So anyway, so I'm watching this movie. And so I did the, the report for school and I passed. You know, I was never looking to get a, a hundred. That was not my my mission at the yeah. time. Now seventy, anything over seventy, I don't care what it is. Now nowadays, I'd want to get a hundred, or I, I don't want to miss one because, like, it means I'm paying attention. Right. It lets me know. It's not for for a pat on the back, but it just lets me know, like, hey, you know, I didn't, sure. I didn't even miss one. So that means I was on point. Right. So if I miss miss one, that means I'm I should have been paying better attention. Right. But that's now. That's not yeah. back then. And that's my own learning. Not not from some not from a teacher, but just trying to like really cap, cap capture all the data. All sure. The the devil's in the details, right? So it is. So the uh, the movie that I saw was like a tame movie. You guys would laugh if I told you about it, so I won't. But there was this other movie that I was telling you about when I went to Times Square, and I didn't go to look at naked chicks. Right. But I did go look at this movie, and this was the martial arts movie. It had like all of these Chinese weapons, all of the kung fu weapons. So I think it was like the, the twelve weapons of. Kung Fu or something. I don't know the exact name of the movie, but I love the right. movie because it had all that delayed reaction with the with the um, subtitle subtitles. Yes. And it wasn't it wasn't Bruce Lee, but it could have been Jackie Chan or it could have been very well could have been. He's been in I don't know how many movies, but a ton before he I'm got sure it was a bunch of the famous guys, and it was a 70s movie, and it was this this these 12, I think it was 12 or, or some number of, of the martial arts weapons, and it was like some crazy looking stuff. I mean, there was like some some uh, knife-looking thing that was with a chain, like a, a whip. Okay. Blades, like a like a skeleton, like someone's back, someone's backbone. Nice. And they're swinging this thing around, and they have all these crazy weapons. And and these guys really, they can really do some stunts because they were jumping backflips and all the stuff moving out of the way, and people were bleeding, and it was getting very bloody, and it was gory, and it was you know campy and funny at the same time. Nice. You know, just the whole vibe was so, there was so much culture and so much, you know, coolness to it. It was. Yeah. Very yeah. gritty, very grimy. You go there right now. If you go there right now, it, when, as a matter of fact, like a couple months ago, I went down there with my daughter out of nowhere. She's like, you know, I want to go to Times Square at night. She, for some reason, she was never there at night. We're walking through and we get right up to one of the, you know, walking down like Madison Avenue or something. And then uh, all of a sudden, She's just like, it looks like daylight. And it was like daylight. And it's and it's 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 not gritty anymore. It's 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 Disney World. It's Disney World. Yeah, they've gentrified things and and to me, you know, I I have an affinity for non-strip malls and non like I like mom and pop. I like the old sure. people, the old the old queens, the old way it was before they started, you know, putting up uh, you know, everything looks like it's got the same drywall and drop ceiling and a same exact thing. Yeah. A cookie cutter stuff. And and having that individuality and that character, it also carries over to music too. You know, it really is part of a, a cultural. Sure. Thing. And, and being from New York and being from Queens, I mean, things didn't always match. No. When I went to the West coast and you saw all these Spanish style homes that have these red tile roofs and all that and everything is the same like in orange county you have uh -huh. like a million homes for miles and it all is the same roof in right. new york you go there it's like you got south bronx and you got the oh yeah you got, right. yeah you got yonkers and you got the 
Bayside and you got, uh, you know, Elmhurst and you got. Uh, oh, yeah. There's back, there's, to, back to the light. Yeah, there's certain there's certain blocks like I do this, like I won't get into it, but I do this whole urban exploration thing. Right. And we'll go look for a certain specific location that like maybe a famous photo was taken or a, a, a movie was filmed or. It was, it was like a true crime spot, like somebody was murdered by some famous sick bastard or whatever. We'll be driving down a block, and it will look it will look like five different, complete different neighborhoods just driving down one block. It's like, how are these houses next to these houses with these houses? And it's it's crazy sometimes. And, and that's you know, like those are the things that are still untouched in the neighborhoods within the city. The very structured thinkers, the people that you know watch their clock, which there's many of of. of that type of individual. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that that's probably, you know, it, it's one side of the brain that's working. And then the other side is the artistic side. Right. So, so I'm more naturally that person. I'm more naturally that artistic thinker, like creative. And I think that's where you come up with original um, ideas, not only in music and art and, and different strategies, different um, theories, different, perceptions yeah come up with, with these creative thought process and i feel like the goal of the current uh overlords of who are pulling the strings that have the control financially economically and also from a power standpoint you know it's to force people out of the creative side of their brain and, and all of this ai stuff it's all going towards a non-creative non-artistic side they want you to all be structured and to me i embrace the creative side and sure ironically for myself in business and in uh, art you know there's times where you know i'm I'm on both sides of you know (laughs) like i'm forced to have to go on this other side and really structured and you know because that's that you know be compliant with everything that you're supposed to be compliant with work with uh you know, even if it's even if it's music, you know, there's timing, there's there's responsibilities, there's things like that. But really, as an artist, you know, truly for a real true artist, you know, it's a creative part of their brain that that's what's oh, uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Necessary. And I just think that our, our society, our, our overall society and you know what they're pushing for is to have less creative thinkers and less free oh. thinkers, less less uh, intel, you know, critical thinking people. Yeah. And, I guess that's how I relate music and that's how I relate, you know, what I'm doing. So I feel like, yeah, I can do the, the heavy metal stuff. And back when I left Anthrax, you know, I felt like, okay, well, I did this already. What, what, I, what do I need to do the same thing again? It's kind right. of like, you know, I already had a, a, a red bicycle, <laughs> a green one, right? A blue one. Let me try a black one. Like, in other words, I already did this and yeah. You know, and I had to get to a point where, you know, I was and also the trend at the time, the trend of of sales and and where, you know, the factors are. Yeah, sales is a factor because that's how bills get paid. That's how. Absolutely. That's the people that come to concerts or that buy your music. And then also. Not just that, but, you know, girls, they weren't really so interested at the time when I was an anthrax of, of that kind of music, the style, they right. were, they were more interested in Bon Jovi stuff. Of course. Yeah. All that, all the sunset, all the sunset strip scene. Yeah, then, then along came white snake and everybody's hair got poofy and all the stuff. And, 
you know, for me, I was always, you know, a gritty New Yorker, you know, down and dirty. You know, I came from working at the Ritz where I worked when it first opened. Oh, really? Nice. And then I also worked at Max's Kansas City. I had the opportunity in the 70s. Wow. Max's. So yeah, um, that was that was before my time, but I hear nothing but I, I hear about legendary shows and legendary bands that played there, man. Yeah, Max's Kansas the City. Early, yeah. All the early punk rock bands and stuff like that. Yeah, for those who don't really know about Max's Kansas City, I mean, it was the most coveted, you know, beloved place in New York to hang out for rock and roll because CBGB's was kind of a hole in the wall. Oh, it was (laughs) fucking rat's nest. Great club. Love seeing but it's just a rat's nest. To be kind, but I've seen some great shows there. Yeah, me too. CBs and Gildersleeves and other places were nice venues for, for New York. I mean, Gildersleeves seemed like the nicer looking venue with the, with the brick walls and the, and, the, and the sound bouncing off the walls. Max's was maybe not as big of a stage as Gildersleeves, but the, it was certainly that place, like the rainbow. You know, you had the really good food. They had the steak, lobster and chickpeas at Max's. I mean, it was just its own thing you could right. get. And you had, you know, people got discovered there. It's like the rainbow of, of New York at the time. Yeah, without a doubt. Bar and grill like in LA. So in that place, you know, you had, uh, you know, Johnny Thunders and Walter Lore and Lemmy and, and uh, Phil Linet. And, you know, you had those people and the, and the Deborah Harry's and all these punk rock bands that got sure. their start. And not just them, but Lou Reed and Aerosmith and. Oh, other yeah. Band. I would even like early, like the first few misfit shows and stuff yeah. like that. Like you start looking back and you start realizing like where these people played and, you know, and, and the same thing in California, there's certain venues like the whiskey, you know, like everybody played there, Bob Seger, you know, Jimi Hendrix, the doors, <laughs> Zeppelin and Alice Cooper. Sure. We know yeah. about that. But you start digging in. It's like, wow. Like yeah. Otis Redding played there in the sixties. He played like yeah. three nights, I think at the, at the whiskey. So it's like, these places, there's not a ton of these kind of iconic rooms that anymore. That, not anymore. So there many. Wasn't, there wasn't that carried over even through the '90s, the 2000s, and, and beyond. 10, 20, and here we are. And with all the stuff that's going on, it's like, you know, what's going to be left? You know, it's not. You know, people are saying, okay, we'll have a a great 2021, and yeah, I'd like to, but. You know, it's not going to be because of magic or, or something imaginary. The, the, that, that, that's a bumper sticker. People, yeah, the people die don't... has been cast. The damage has been done. The, the, the fallout is, I mean, there's got to be fallout from all, all, all the folks that aren't, you know, all the music that's not happening. I mean, all of the suffocation of, um, you know, the, the industry. But fortunately, having the experience and having the years of, of um, opportunities to learn you know, learn the ropes and go through the process. You know, even even being a member uh, when uh, during my time in Anthrax for a couple of years. You know, before that, my experience was at Max's Kansas City and the Ritz and all these other places. So I really got to see like the punk scene and you know when the Sex Pistols were coming up and the Police and the Clash and yeah, you know, and, and then they had these concerts in Central Park that you know, like I saw some really, I mean, the Ramones. I saw them in the seventies and crazy and twisted sister and all these you know just being part of that scene and you know then when i get out to california it was kind of like you have okay so these guys dip their toes in the sand and then they show up at a rat concert oh let's sign these guys you know and yeah oh then we'll get motley crew then we'll get you know so it just seemed like okay well 
yeah, so they're not si- signing guys that don't have dark hair and they're not looking like, you know, David Lee Roth or something. So right. Exactly. But I have to, I have to ask you, and I, I know, I know you've spoken about it a million times and we don't have to go too, too, too much into it, but how, how, how did you, and who did you meet first with the Antarx guys to get into the band? Well, yeah, I was going to give a different uh, topic, but that's fine. I, I can, uh, just, talk about that. just so, real quick, or you can tell it. Yeah, I was going to talk about, I was going to talk about how, when I came out to LA, you know, I, I met a lady, her name was Lucy Forbes. Okay. She, she was heavy metal productions and, 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 and she booked the country club. So she booked Anthrax the two nights that, that the band played there. So I came out and, you know, I came out to do auditions and I came out to, you know, pursue other opportunities. So, I mean, I did have some interesting experiences, which I can talk about, which people don't really know about. So, I mean, I, I went to Bill Ward from Black Sabbath's house. Wow. In San Pedro. Fine. And he had been working with Glenn Hughes and he's like, Oh, you have a much better sound. You know, Glenn was, is a great singer. I mean, let's not take anything away from Glenn. I'm not, there's no way anyone's better than someone else. (laughs) Different maybe. But, But the idea is that Glenn, you know, he, he was having a hard time, you know, with substances at the time. And this is like eighties. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Bill knew Glenn, I'm sure very well, you know, purple and Sabbath, but at that timing, you know, Bill was not in Sabbath. Bill was doing his own. He was doing that ward one thing before he did, before it came out. Okay. And I met him and Lucy Forbes. I was in his, in his house in his studio and it's like, Hey, you know, nothing happened with that, but it was really cool to go sit down oh. with Bill Ward, you know, yeah, like, that. This, that's just a cool experience to have. Like, like cool. uh, you know, I can remember when I was playing with my first band, the new race in, uh, in, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the area. It's right, right near the Frog's Neck bridge, uh, okay. Whitestone, Whitestone, New York. Okay. It's Queens. And so one of my very best friends at the time, drummer from my band we were hanging out because we were we were schoolmates so we're hanging out i'm in his his room and we're listening to music you know a lot of acdc a lot of black sabbath a lot of other cool stuff and on his wall you know he had that black sabbath album i'm trying to think we sold our soul or paranoid the one where bill bill ward like they're wearing tights he's wearing like blue or some kind of tights like okay i guess it's before spandex they're wearing tights yeah without a (laughs) Like a Superman costume or something. And, and I mean, it was Bill Ward and I'm looking on his wall and it's an album. And I'm like, you know, what, 15 years old, 16, 14, 15, 16, you know, around the time of my first, you know, even before I had my first band with, with my friend. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this thing and then I'm, then I'm at Bill Ward's house looking at him and I'm like, okay, this is really weird for me. Yeah. How'd this happen? Yeah. Back to like, Hey, I was in my friend's room as a kid and this is a poster on his wall or a picture on his wall. And here's Bill telling me, you know, Oh yeah, you know, you're so much better than, and I was young then. And I I was still, you know, I had a ways to to things, you know, I had to to go learn the ropes more. I had, I had some singing lessons that I needed to learn on my own at that time and, and business lessons and, and so, so forth. But it was just, really interesting to uh, have that experience. Now, I don't know, it took a while for Bill to get that band lined up solid and I wasn't part of it, but it was a learning experience and people tell you, Oh, this, that, the other, but you know, like who delivers, you know, who's going to, but, but it was really fun. And then I auditioned for a lot of LA bands at the time. There was quite a few. And when we say LA, you know, it could be orange County. It could be uh, down in the South Bay, San Pedro. So there was a number of them. So I actually played with, um, 
the drummer from uh, Quiet Riot at the time, original drummer. And, you know, I played with uh, Rudy Sarzo and Tommy Aldridge and Driver. Wow. Like, I got to audition. And I actually thought I did a good job in that, but uh, I didn't get that work. All right. Hey, that's actually where I met. Oh, that's awesome. I though. actually met Kurt James, who was playing with Driver. Like, he was playing with them. So I jammed with him, and I had met him when he was playing the Waters Club. So he ended up in my band, Death Riders. And I was in a band with Kurt in the 87, Kurt James band. Huh. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of historical, you know, data that people are not even, you know, people are like, what have you done since Anthrax? Like, well, a lot. Turn on your fucking brain, you know, like open up the frequency so you mm-hmm. can get a sense of what's going on. Like people only seem to visualize or perceive what's on the headlines of, of you know, blabbermouth or a newspaper or, you know, not everything is, is plastered across the headlines. You know, you got to do a little work, like read the fucking instructions. You know right. what I mean? Like, oh, people don't like to do that anymore. People don't like to do like that. To. But, but what I'm saying is like, if you don't, if you don't investigate something, like if you're going to go to a, a place and you want to find out, Hey, you know, do they let kids in? You have a, you have a family, right? You, you want to see if the kids can go in. Right. And they serve alcohol. Like, okay, well, can you get your kid in there? And well, maybe it takes a phone call. Like maybe going to the website's not enough. Hey, you know, do you let, what's the age that you'll let someone in? Is there a time limit? And things like that. Just sure. common sense. And it's like, if people don't use their brain to try to figure stuff out, it's like, here, here's the, the thing that I get out of today's environment. It's like, if you, if you're going somewhere from where you live and you're going to New Jersey somewhere, and you've never been there. And let's say you've been there once and you, you can't really remember it was a long time ago or you weren't feeling great or you weren't driving. Right. You went there. You don't exactly remember how to get there. Right. So you put it on your GPS. Now GPS, I can tell people that everywhere else where you got open roads. Yeah. GPS, no problem. But New York or in the big city where you got these giant skyscraper buildings. I mean, sometimes the GPS don't work. Right. And sometimes it's cloudy or rainy or the shit don't work. And other times like, and especially with the technology in the past, the reception shit didn't work. Maybe right. now it's better, but there was many years that that shit didn't work. You're trying oh. to go somewhere in New York, two blocks away, you can't even find it because the GPS don't work. Yeah, oh, it'll bring you all the way around, up and through, you bridges for no reason. Yeah, yeah. so it, it's really, yeah, it's been like that for a long time. So when people say to me, oh, well, I don't know how to get there, Neil. I just go off the GPS. I'm like, I'm trying to go to your fucking house. Can you just tell me the fucking address and what the cross streets are? Like, I'll figure it out. But right. If you don't do the research, if you don't do your homework, well, you know, whose fault is that? That's not my fault that someone didn't fucking look it up. Like, right. like what have you done? Well, I don't know. What have you done? You know, like, where have you yeah. been? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, I've been to a lot of places and I'm not bragging. It's just, you know, there's, you can't ask good questions if you don't know what a person's done. You can't, so, so when I do interviews for the metal voice, you know, I like to interview people that I know something about or that I do my homework on and I right. need to do homework. Now let people know who don't know exactly what the metal voice is. Cause I think it's awesome. And I'll tell you the honest, honest truth. I really wasn't too familiar with it until about a few weeks ago when me and you started communicating and I started to dig in a little bit and I was like, wow, like I knew of death riders and I knew of a few things and I'm obviously the anthrax thing, but once I found out about that and then the Metal Hall of Fame, so I started digging a little bit and then I found out basically everything, you know? So, but the Metal Voice, I think is really cool. Well, the Metal but Voice metal- is, is really cool. It's a great uh, institution for, for, you know, rock and metal. 
and all the different forms of, of music that, you know, that it covers, which, you know, I've had the opportunity to interview a lot of, uh, you know, heavy metal icons, as well as rock and roll icons, actors, even rockabilly, psychobilly bands. And, you know, it's just, it's not about being isolated in a sing single vertical and being prejudiced against everything else. It's like I was in uh, France at one time back in 84 after I left Anthrax. I was there with uh, Jack Starr's band. Ironically, I joined up with them for like, a, you know, I, I was just there. Like the promoter brought me over. It was weird. But um, I was supposed to maybe fill in for Rhett Farster if he didn't do it. I don't know. Maybe they had some internal things going on. Right. Rhett is a great singer. Rhett was always a great frontman, great singer, and did a fantastic job. But I was brought over there. So I was there with Carl Kennedy, who produced the first Anthrax album. And, okay. and Jack Starr and, um, you know, Gary Bordenaro from The Rods. So, I mean, these were familiar faces, familiar people. I went over there. But one of the things that was going over there is the cultural revolution, the, the culture shock of being in France, 84. Oof. You know, prices were different. Lifestyles were different, you know. Sure. Europe wasn't the king of heavy metal then. You know, they were like trying to catch up to the U.S., I think. It was kind of back and forth, you know, who had the yeah. who had the flame. You know, the blues artists in the U.S. had the flame, then the Stones and the Beatles had the flame, and then it went back and forth. And, you know, then Hendrix came over from the U.S., you know, and then it was like you go over to the other side of the world, then it's how, that's how these people establish themselves. Yeah. But for me, it was like I went over there, and I really wasn't, I really wasn't in the band. I was kind of like more of a spectator, more of a, I was there. Yeah, I was an anthrax, but it was kind of weird. So I did some interviews. I went to the shows that were there and I stayed there for a few months. I, I lived in France for about three months. And what was uh, quite fascinating is I'm taking the train and, you know, I had long hair and you had the punk rock folks who were skinheads. Sure. And not all of them were skinheads, but they were, you know, they had a certain style. Of course, they hated, they hated you if you're heavy metal. They hated you. Oh yeah, oh, it was I like know. it's like if you're in, in a place where the, the racism and the prejudice was bad. We're talking about racism against a heavy metal person. It's very bizarre. <laughs> racism against a punk rock person, and these are you know these are genres now. Like it's okay to like punk rock or okay oh, to like sure. heavy metal. but but the racism was like no, you can't like both. And and I think that. This, 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 is the, this is the problem that we have. We have uh, intolerance in our world of, of people that just, oh, you can't like heavy, you have to like heavy metal. That's all you can talk about. You know, this is a heavy metal show or heavy metal fan. And for me, you know what I like? I like good songwriting. I like good singers. I like good music. I'm, I'm really into the singing part of it. So I like sure. talented singers, people that really know how to sing. So when I hear someone like Anika Costa, who, you know, she was, like this child singer who was supposed to be on TV shows and be, you know, because of the connection she had when she was a kid and her dad and all that. And, and then she becomes this soul singer, hmm. like this, this blue eyed soul, white chick that sings the crap out of soul. Yeah. But, but very, you know, progressive to a, to a certain extent and very, you know, a true artist. And to me, I can appreciate that. And I appreciate Paul Rogers. And that's what took me to those places of, soulful singers right. I appreciate Glenn Hughes you know as a metal singer as a as a hard rock singer as a rock singer I mean I appreciate those singers and even Bon Scott who is a pretty soulful singer yeah so these are singers that took me to this the soulful place and you know ironically of of all 
people, you know, progressive singers like Steve Walsh from Kansas. Very soulful. Like, oh, 100%. His, his singing style back in the 70s. You know, these guys were listening to soul. These yeah. guys were listening to Sam, Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. Yeah. They're listening to Aretha Franklin. You know, I met Lou Graham from Foreigner. He told me. I said, who, you know, who are your influences? I, you know, he told me that, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin. I'm like, who would have known that? Yeah. And, and the same thing with, um, you know, so, I mean, obviously with Glenn, it's uh, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, I've been influenced from the heavy metal singers. You know, of course, you're, you're Ronnie James Dio's, you're, you're Rob Halford's, you're Ian Gillen's and, you know, all the rainbow singers, all the deep purple singers and all that. But, you know, many other singers and, and also oh. newer generations. You know, part of that is is also adapting to some of these newer generations. Like some of it, I just didn't really find appealing. Like new metal and and you yeah, know, they start they start taking rap and trying to put it in. It's like taking to me that's kind of like taking um, two food groups that don't belong together. <laughs> yeah, put like, like like putting pineapple on pizza. Since well, when did since when does citrus fruit go on top of? dairy cheese and sauce i don't know you might love it i think it's i think that shit is satanic to me how about prime rib and peanut butter Mm. yeah amazing with some horseradish i mean it's just like stuff that don't need to be joined together and i'm sure some gourmet person will make that become a combination of course and charge a lot for it but call it some weird foo-foo name and next thing you know it's a delicacy but it's just prime rib and peanut butter i mean there are some fine cuisines that that work somehow it just works like they they make these cocktails and they'll use you know certain fruit you know certain vegetables or fruits or cucumber with certain combinations or watermelon like cucumber and watermelon that's an interesting one but it works then you know they use apricot and blackberry and brandy and you know some other alcohol and and it works you know but these are things that they complement or they, you know, they might be like the point counterpoint. They might be an adversarial combination, but it just somehow works, you know, like uh, s'mores. I mean, right. these things, they're all sweet. So it all works. Right. But when you have stuff that just doesn't need to like, like, happen. <laughs> yeah. hey, I got I just got to share this. So when I was 13, I was at my friend's house in Bay Terrace, New York, near Bayside where I was living. Okay. And, you know, he was, he had the bands that he liked and I had the bands that I liked. And we both had albums that I brought over to his house and he was in a good neighborhood. I didn't live in that neighborhood, but I visited him. It was ironically the same building that uh, Scott from Anthrax lived in at the time, but that's before I knew him. So I went to this place and, you know, it's a fancy high, high rise tower, really, you know, high end. And I'm over there and, you know, he opens up, he says, here, check this out. And I was all excited because I had my Kiss Alive 2 album. I said, I said, I want you to check out something too. I opened up the Kiss Alive 2 album, you know, the center piece where they have the, the whole stage set up with the flames and the yes. platforms and the hydraulic stage of the Peter Chris and the yeah. Keith Simmons and the Paul Stanley and Ace Freel. I mean, all of it was just like, it was a band, but it was like bigger than life. I mean, it was sure. this insane stage show. Like who, who had a more impressive show than Kiss? Right. Maybe Jesus or Elvis or someone. Maybe. Maybe. Oh. I don't know. Did they have the flames and the... I don't know. You know. Moses did part the Red Sea, but I mean, you had these flames and you had blood. Hey. <laughs> and these guys could rock and they had good so- good music. I like, you know, I really loved Kiss back in mm-hmm. those days. 
So I was excited to share my KISS, my love for KISS and all their merch and all their worldwide success and all this. Like, wow, check this out. But my friend was like, you need to check this out. The Mothership Connection, Parliament Funkadelic, P-Funk at Madison Square Garden. You open up the album and it's like, here's the damn Mothership and it's a giant spaceship and it's all funk. Yeah. And guess what? It was great music. Sure. Clinton and and yeah. his crew. I mean, such great music. And that's to me when, you know, the soul music, the funk music, when you really call it funk, it really had, we, you know, it really had teeth and it had wheels under it. It was really a movement. It was really like, it took the R&B and it took it to another place. Yeah. And, and I was excited because it was like this, you know, we weren't prejudiced or, or judgmental because it's like, you know, I'm from New York. It's a melting pot. You know, my best friend was from Thailand. My other best friend was a black dude from Bay Terrace. Yeah. My other best friend was from Haiti, yeah. Colombia. I mean, I had Latin people. I had, you know, people from the Bronx, Italian people, Jewish <laughs> yeah. people. Tony over there. Irish people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody. Like, right. what is there to be prejudiced about? You got like, you should be thankful because without all these great different people, where would you be eating? Right. It's the American place. I, I mean, I liked eating Italian food. I liked eating Irish food. I liked eating Thai food. I liked eating Chinese food. I mean, New York, you have the greatest Chinese food pretty much on the planet. Probably yeah. better than China. No dogs in your food there. Right. Well, you never know. Well, there was, there was, I don't know if you remember, well, I don't know if you remember that you were in California, but in the, in the late 80s, there was a place called Mr. Tang's. And it wasn't too far from King's Plaza. And it was delicious. And we, I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but we used to always order their baby back ribs. And then... For, you guys for, that, order the baby back ribs at Mr. Tang's. Isn't that right? Right. That's what I did. That's what that was, my whole family used to all the time. Open? Are you still there? They are not still there because... Well, you can't order it now. No, because... I don't know, it was several months later or whatever. It was this whole big thing. It was in the papers that Mr. Tang's got shut down because they had an entire walk-in freezer filled with cats. Mm. And and then you're like, you know what? If you really think about it, those baby back ribs were really little. They were really little. So I wouldn't be surprised if I consumed a whole bunch of cats. Well, here, here's the scary thing now for everybody. But you never know. <laughs> here's the scary thing. So they have this technology, this, this not only cloning technology, which is real. Yes. I mean, I mean, apparently the Star Trek technology, the ability to transport, um, you know, uh, molecules or, or atoms or have, you know, just the way that works and the array of the, of the, of the transposition of these, you know, on a physics level. Mm-hmm. Like people, scientists were like, ha ha, quantum physics and all this. Uh, that's just fairy tale. And you're, a conspiracy there is quantum physics. Right. And now it's like, oh, well, guess what? It's real because they got it all over the mainstream media. How about this one? Oh, you wear a tinfoil hat because, oh, there's non-terrestrials, uh-huh. or UFOs, right. or, or, or un- unidentified aerial phenomena. Yeah. It's like, what did the Pentagon come out with? Video footage this year. Yeah. Or actually 2020. Yes. Of, of, of uh, chase scenes. Yeah. From, from the Air Force fighter plane chasing a UFO and, and the, the maneuvering and the things that it did 
And this is the Pentagon doing. This is not some person saying, oh, well, I saw something. No, it's yeah. the Pentagon. So yeah. I have to go back to this. I have to go back to the fact that, oh, those people that were talking about these, these things that happened, they weren't talking about like little green men dancing around on, a, on, the, on the wing of an airplane and you saw them. But right. stuff that you see in the sky, like if you don't know what it is, that's unidentified. It's something. Yeah. And, and you know, the people that saw something, I mean, I've seen stuff. Why, why are people wearing a tinfoil hat? It's like, what, what do people want to believe? What do you want to believe? It's like, what do you choose to believe? Do you want to believe CNN and CNBC and, 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 uh, you know, whatever else what was it? The, the, yeah. NPR and, and yeah. Fox or any, any of that MSNBC, like, all of that. Like if you look at these corporations, they're all owned by somebody of and course. what's their political direction and what's their agenda. And people don't get that. And it's like, man, you guys got to think like, think. Yeah. Use your brain. It's like there's an agenda. It's like even if it was, even if it was Capitol Records or a, you know, obviously CBS, ABC, those are big names. But if it's even a record company, you know, who are they? Who are they owned by? Disney? Well, there's definitely, <laughs> you know, it, it ain't it ain't helping you and me. It's like we, you know, you, can, you go try to play heavy metal at Disney. You know, yeah, not happening. Things are getting censored. You can't say this. You can't do this. And it's not yeah. just one company. It's like all of these guys. So. I think one of the things that has always been true about, um, you know, the, the, the heavy metal and the rock and roll is, is being, a, you know, I guess there's a certain amount of rebellion, a certain amount of James Dean to a point. Sure. There's a certain amount of Elvis, certain amount of, uh, you know, <laughs> Chuck Berry, a certain amount of, uh, of that, that uh, radical. Yeah. Without a doubt. Feeling. Yeah. And I think that acquiescing, you know, to, what, what's the popular theme, you know, of the month, of the, the flavor of the month. To me, it's just not my way. And no. I've never been that person. I'm, and I'm not now. And I never no. have I been. Me neither. Me but, neither but at I, all. But I'm going to go and answer your question about uh, anthrax because you asked me about, you know, back in New York. And yeah, just basically, I mean, you know, like I said, you don't have to go crazy into details. Just, you know, how, who you met, how you met, how it go. And then and then we can move right past it, because yeah, so. you, you, because like you just said, you're not, you know, just, you know, the anthrax guy. I'm just suggesting my uh, stand that's got a lot of weight on. It. That's fine. Because of the green screen, but. Yeah, I had a microphone. Right there. <laughs> There you go. I decided to fall down in my studio. <laughs> so, so what happened is uh, I actually was in school with Scott. I was in a TV studio class. It was like a workshop class. And this is my first year in high school. So, so I did know Scott from that class. And what was interesting, and I don't know if this has ever been mentioned before, but we were doing a, you know, the teacher asked us to do a project. And the project was uh, a video. It was like on one inch tape. Okay. And, and we did this video project. And my, my project was on Van Halen. So I used uh, the music, like Running With The Devil. You can imagine yeah. the opening of that. And I have like the, 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 you know, we didn't have anything fancy like. Well, like not nowadays. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had a, you know, a black and white camera and we're looking at, uh, or maybe it was color and we're looking at, um, you know, an album cover. Then I switched to another scene. So it was all about the fading or the, the wiping to another scene. Yes. So, so I'm using, you know, the different members of Van Halen and zooming in on them. And then we wipe to another album, Van Halen 2. I mean, you get the uh, idea. Of course. I'm running with the devil and it sounded kick-ass. And it was like, yeah, I'm about kick-ass rock and roll. <laughs> right. So, so ironically, 
um, you know, there was uh, Scott and this other guy, Neil Stopel, who was his friend in school. And they were in the class together and they did it like they're hanging out. And they, they did, uh, they had um, Pat Benatar and Pink Floyd shirts. And here I am with my Sex Pistols shirt or my, you know, I was more of like into that. And they're into more commercial kind of music at the time. Gotcha. Because, I mean, you know, your shirts, you know, he's wearing the Pat Benatar. That's what Scott had on a Pat Benatar jacket or something or a shirt. No, it was, I think it was Pink Floyd, the wall and a Pat okay. Benatar shirt. And, and Neil Stopel, he had the, uh, maybe Pat Benatar too. I don't know. But <laughs> right. These guys didn't like me back then. So, so okay. already, already, it was already like, oh, you know, it was jealousy or some weirdness. I don't know what it was, but, you know, why don't you like me? I don't know. I didn't do anything to him, but I guess they they didn't like the fact that I like Van Halen or something. Okay. Weird, so, but fine. <laughs> so back then I liked Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix and I was doing my, uh, my, my project on those bands. And so I did, so I, you know, somewhere I've got a one inch tape of, uh, that kind of video. You still have it somewhere? Maybe. maybe. And ironically I did with my first band, a new race back with that one inch tape, not, not part of the television studio class, but that was pretty much a format a Betamax or some kind of format back then. Uh, we did a video at the World Trade Center. I wow. think it was in 1980. Okay. Band. And I wish that I could find that footage or get to it. And I know that a guitar player that was my guitar player in the new race, his, his name was Carl Lucas. Okay. And he was uh, also an engineer at Bell Labs. I mean, this guy was like a rocket scientist. Wow. Back then. And, you know, so it was a, it was a pressure on the band. Like you couldn't, rehearse with the band or he wasn't available he's busy with bell labs or he's you know busy with school or busy you know serious career serious you know yeah. rocket scientist guy well, you know not not unlike a tom schultz kind of guy right. <laughs> wiring all this stuff up and he knows all you know he, he understands how it all works responsible guy good job you know has shit together you know the rest of us are rock and rollers you know just trying to do our rock and roll life. Yeah, do your rock and roll thing. Yeah. So, but, but, uh, you know, just remembering this stuff. And, and the thing that's painful to me is like, you know, some people have a hard time remembering. I have a hard time forgetting. Like I try to forget stuff because when, when I see th certain things, it reminds me of things I remember clear as day. So sure. it's like, I'd like to not remember some things. Yeah. So it's kind of it. like the opposite. I don't remember everything and I'm not, you know, a genius or brilliant or anything like that, but, you know, it's kind of like, almost like a photographic memory. You see stuff, you remember stuff, you remember smells, you remember places. You oh, remember I'm, I'm the same way. I remember, I, there's some stuff I wish I could forget. But there's places, I, there's places I remember that don't exist, but I still remember them. And I remember what was said and I remember what, how people acted. I remember how yeah. I felt. Yeah. That's the most important thing. When you yeah. walk away from something, it's how you feel from that person. Sure. How, how do they make you feel? You know, what did you feel? It's like, if you felt funny, what was the deal with that? Why, why did that person... Why do you feel funny? What's the cause of that? Right. But that's just me. You know, I, I go deep, you know, but um, back to the anthrax. So yeah, I knew Scott. And then what was interesting about the way that that worked, I, I joined a band after new race. I was in college and um, I was probably around 18, something like that. Maybe nine, might've been 19. And I, I think it was 19. I, I was in college or late 19 going to, yeah, I think I was 19. And then at that point, I um, put an ad out in um, 
the music connect, not the music connection. It was a good times magazine. Okay. And that magazine was out on the Island, Northern Island. It was in Manhattan. It was in, you know, music places, venues. Yeah. Stores, that sort of thing. So it was like, kind of like not the village voice, but it was a good music magazine. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause as soon as you mentioned that, that's the first thing that popped in my head was the village voice. Yeah. So they had a classified section and people took it serious back then. That's what you used. You know, there was no internet. There was no Craigslist. There was none of that stuff. Right. So that would be the place that you, you know, if it was New York city, well, yeah, they might put it in the village voice, but good times was the place. And so I get a call months later from a guy saying, Hey man, you want to audition for a band? That was Scott. And I was like, well, yeah, I put an ad out a few months ago. I've been in this band for a month and I'm not, or two months and I'm not, you know, I'm not planning to, I'm already in a band. Right. I didn't think like, Hey, you know, you could be in like five bands or two bands or right. you could have like two girlfriends or have like two cat, cats or two dogs. Right. or two, two right. Like I thought, Oh, you can only have one. I don't know where I got this idea, but I, oh, felt, no. like, I felt like one was, you know, I was busy. I got one. Yeah. You were busy. You don't have time for anything else. Yeah. I'm in a band. Like, I don't need another band. Like, right. You're not reading books or being in two bands. Yeah. You only need one bicycle. You don't need two. Right. Uh, right. Oh no. I don't know the logic. Maybe, maybe I, need, I had a lot to learn back then, but there you, know, I, I, you know, I had to get my priorities straight and figure it out. But mm-hmm. back then that's what I thought. And I was like, no, no, thanks. Thanks a lot though for calling and see you later. Bye. Yeah. And then, and then I saw an ad after I left this band, Amra, I was in the band for three months. Okay. And uh, we had this drummer that we ended up getting. It was me and this guitar player and this other guitar player. And we got this drummer who was totally into Rush. With nothing wrong with Neil Peart or, or Rush. Love it, right? Right. But it was all about a drum solo. The whole band was about a drum oh. solo. <laughs> so we were trying to do this commercial hard rock music, you know, heavy rock. And all of a sudden it became like, you know, triplets and all kinds of uh, extra drum fills and, you know, like, a very long drum roll to get to every part where they're singing. Right. The guy was a great drummer, really, really, really great. And had a big drum kid, double bass player, amazing drummer. But, you know, it's like, it would be like dream theater with only the instrumentation and no singing. Oh, Jesus. Okay. (laughs) He was turning Def Leppard songs into that, you know. Right. He went from ACDC Def Leppard to, oh, New Wave of British Heavy Metal to, oh, okay, so you're going to do Rush on everything. Right. Everything could be progressive. It became a prog band. So, so I, I left that band, but I did eventually see them in a gig, ironically, in Elmhurst. They did a gig right. there. And to me, they had the singer, and it's like, you know, they thought they were going to impress me. You know, we got this new singer and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. So the guy's singing. He's trying to sing like really mediocre vocals over some guy trying to play Neil Peart drums. And the band's they had really cool songs with me. It was like this more mainstream sounding music. And all of a sudden now it's like a mishmash of progressive meets bad singing meets like it was, it was just so disorganized where it was going. Yeah. And I think they were doing a gig opening up for his band. I think it was Thor at the time. Okay. From Canada. Yeah. And this might've been 1982. If I, the timing is about correct. So that's when I met Thor and his wife at the time. And it was interesting because Thor had an album, you know, and all that, let the blood run red and all that and thunder in the tundra. And <laughs> so, I don't know if that album came out later, but anyway, back then, you know, I met Thor 
And ironically, I just recently uh, finished singing a song with Thor this week. Right. I just did work with Thor. And I I played with Thor on stage. You know, he asked me afterwards, hey, you know, it'd be really cool to to work on a song together. And I just finished that. That's pretty cool, man. For a video game that he's doing and so and for his album. So I just worked on a song called We Fight Forever. And you know, if I do say so myself, I'm I'm excited about it. You know, it's uh, you it should be. That's cool. awesome. It's fun. It sounds good. So you know, this year, uh, well, 2020, working with uh, Thor. Even though 2020 was a limited year for being, everybody, <laughs> yeah, but I still, you know, had a, a recording I did with Thor. That'll come out in 2021. I'm pretty sure about that. And then uh, Quiet Riot. I actually was a fan of Quiet Riot for so many years. And of course, man. In 1986, I did a recording with a Japanese guitar player who I was roommates with, a guy named Kuni Takauchi. And at the time, you know, I was helping him write all the stuff in English. And, you know, he wanted me to write all this lyrics. And then when we get to doing the album, it's like, oh, well, thanks a lot. We're going to use other singers now. Screw you. So, huh. they, you know, but the publishing company, Watanabe Music, was cool. They you know, they, they paid me and, you know, I did receive a few checks from them that were good back in the day, but it's like, and they treated me right. You know, the, the people were, were reasonable people. It's just that the guitar player was not, you know, just a, just a run of the mill narcissist to like, look at me. Everything's about me. Kind uh-huh. of thing. And I was always about, Hey, it's about us, a team, a group, you know, let's do it together. Right. I, I didn't give a shit about, Oh, pat me on the back. Give me, you know, attention. I don't, I don't care about that. It's just not for me. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like I'm okay to, I'm okay to just do what I do. Just be me. You know, I just do what I do. Yeah. And if you, if you want to like it, that's cool. If you don't, if you don't notice, that's okay. If you don't want to give me a like on whatever social media, that ain't going to hurt my feelings. If you want to delete me, that's fine too. I'm going to do what I do because that's what I believe in. That's where my heart is. Heart is. That's, that's what I love to do. It's my passion. That's where I go with it. So nice. Anyway, um, how it should be, man. Yeah, Same with me, like I don't care. You you like me, you don't like me. You want to follow me, you want to listen, you don't want to listen. You want to hit that little silly like button. Ah, it doesn't. I don't care. I do what I do, and that's that's at the end of the day. Well, that's how it should be. And and yeah, you know, I just there's certain things I have a passion for. So so I like. I mean, I'm a heavy metal singer, and that's what people know me for and thrash. Yeah, but I also I'm also able to step out of that that um. That box. Of course. Yeah, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself into it. I mean, I mean it's just like, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just like, you know, like with this, it's like I've had so many different types of people on. You know, I've had people from hardcore bands and punk rock bands and metal bands and record label people and graffiti writers and underground hip hop rappers. And I had my daughter on an episode. I had a stunt woman on an episode. It's just like, I just want to. Talk about fun, cool shit. You know what I mean? And it all started out as a music, basically like a hardcore podcast. But after a while, it's like we all agree about certain records and certain bands. But even though it would be a different person I'm talking to, I felt like it was getting redundant. So I'm like, I don't care. I'm not going to pander to any specific audience. You know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's that. And I had this band that I was going to mention something else, but I kind of got sidetracked. So. Sorry. <laughs> I have to, okay. Got to grab the thought while it's there, but, but I have this, I had this other band that I was working with and we didn't do 
we, it didn't come to fruition, but I was working with um, a friend of mine. We had jammed together in Hollywood and I'd been over to his house in the studio and, you know, we had done a number of rehearsals and he had this idea for a band. And so I was jamming and, and I come from a background, you know, where I was into the punk rock scene. Yeah. I know you probably don't associate me with punk rock, especially when I can sing the soul music stuff or the other melodic stuff, but it was me on the drums was Lucky Lehrer from Circle Jerks. Wow. And uh, on the bass guitar was Chuck from Black Flag. Wow, that's awesome. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, just given our, our uh, pedigree, you know, what our backgrounds were, and this other girl who was playing guitar. And so we were jamming for a number of times. We'd get together and rehearse, and it was like a weekly thing. And, you know, the vocals started becoming more melodic. It wasn't really a punk delivery, but I had that attitude. The lyrics were, you know, the fuck you attitude. And it was yeah. that. But I don't know, the vocal just wanted to kind of lean in this melodic direction. I just think that if we're going to be a full on punk band, it should have been, you know, the guitar player would have been more punk. Sure. But she was less punk and more kind of somewhere in the middle. And those two guys were from the punk rock side. And I appreciate, you know, my band New Race, we were kind of like punk heavy metal yeah so i mean ramones that's where we that's what i grew up with is there any of that stuff out there no no do you have some of it um you know i don't think i have that but uh okay that, and there wasn't really like we were gonna we were about to do something and then people got busy with stuff and you know of course i have death riders and my other bands bleed the hunger and we're recording right. no, i just figured maybe if you had one of those Old or some really old stuff of the new race is to I do have that. I do have the new race, yes. That nice. I do. And and the thing that kind of irritates me is you have these uh labels that you know it's like, hey Jimmy, remember that band you were in in 1973? <laughs> we don't give the a shit, shit that I don't want to ever see the light of day. <laughs> we don't really give a shit about the the Brooklyn Blast Furnace. We don't want to help promote your your show and what you're doing now. Right. Because it is fantastic, but we have no interest in that. We just want to push your your band when you were in 1973 and your hair was poofy or something like that. And yeah, like, like we can sell that and we don't want to pay you anything. We just want to get you to give you, give us your demo tape. And we're going to put that out as an album. Yeah. So now nah, I'm good. <laughs> Cause you're gonna, you get a nice pat on the back and yeah, you know, all 13 of the people that we're going to sell this to are going to be really excited. And yeah, you know, I, I just, I'm sorry, but it's like, I would put out old stuff if I was, you know, if I was Sammy Hagar, then why not? Right. You know, but, but I'm not. And, you know, yeah, they pay you for everything. Yeah. Who, who's going to buy that? And, and, you know, some of those songs weren't on the level where they could have been. And some of it was, it's really raw. Of course. And, and some of it, it's fun to listen to. I mean, there's some the cool stuff, you know, it's, 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 you know, you'd hear it and be like, wow, that really it was actually really good for what it was back then. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it was collaborated on with different writing pe people writing it because back then I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. Like we're right. writing lyrics. I didn't really understand, you know, how the system and how different. Well, of course not. You were a teenager. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the same thing for, for the singing. Yeah. You know, like I didn't like at first, you know, when I was 15, you know, I met Robin Zander and Tom Peterson in, in the Parker Meridian Hotel in, in New York. And, uh, you know, I was with a friend who was a paparazzi before they called it that back then. He was, like, he was like the number two guy 
of, of all time paparazzi. So there was one guy, Ron something or other. He was like the number one paparazzi guy. My friend was a guy who photographed like Paul McCartney and Elton John and Led Zeppelin and David Bowie and all those guys. So he was just taking me. We were in Manhattan. We were walking through a hotel. He's taking me to dragging me here and there. And we went to uh, this hotel. And all of a sudden, the same night that I went to see Cheap Trick at Madison Square Garden, they're staying at the hotel. You know, you knew where to go to see them at the hotel. And, to, and we were in an elevator with them. Wow. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm 15 and I'm, you know, totally green back then. Of course. <laughs> but it was exciting. And it's like, okay, this is like, this is like a real interaction with rock stars now. And, you know, I had those interactions early on because my, uh, one of my family members used to date Paul Stanley uh, when they were in high school. Really? Yeah. So she was a ba- she was a babysitter at one time for me. So when I was like, pretty young like we're talking preteen. she was babysitting it was a family member you know cousin yeah an aunt she she was an no she wasn't an aunt she was a cousin so she was a sister of an aunt so she was um babysitting and paul stanley actually came over to my house no shit dating her yeah i mean we didn't really hang out and talk because i was yeah i was gonna say i don't know if you really hung out and talk but that's kind of cool though he was there for another reason (laughs) <laughs> of course he was he was there for chicks and you know back then gosh it had to have been like i guess kiss must have been a thing it must have, been, it must have been like even before kiss like 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 i remember the mother you know her mother talking like stanley <laughs> what are you doing like she she'd be walking in manhattan and she come up to Paul Stanley and he was like That's singing. Hilarious. He'd be singing on the street with his guitar. Jeez. Like, like a street performer. But that's, that's what, you know, yeah, well, Paul yeah. Stanley's a phenomenal guy, you know, phenomenal singer, phenomenal artist, but he, you know, he worked hard. And back then even yeah. like, he, knew what he wanted to do. And he was, he was out there, you know, they were doing what they had to do. And back then it was a different world in the seventies, you know, playing on the street corner. Oh yeah. Getting people to hear your stuff. I mean, that's, that's okay. Yeah. Hey, listen, you got to start somewhere. I mean, I mean, it's, it's insane that people, you know, people don't realize like all the hard work and where people started from, to, you know, playing stages the size of, you know, three, you know, six foot long stages with four people in the crowd. And next thing you know, you're Metallica. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't realize, you know, the shit that goes into it. It's like next thing you know, it's like, oh, these people were just automatically rock stars. It's like, nah, man, there's so much shit that went into this stuff that no one even realizes or appreciates or even acknowledges. Yeah. And those first, those, those formative years or those earlier years, you know, there wasn't a lot of exposure to big name people and big, you know, famous people. And also being in New York, you know, you came across people here and there, but yeah. You know, to me, the coolest thing was like electric Ladyland studios on eight street, the village. And sure. you, know, you run into someone in Manhattan and I did, I would run into some people. There was, um, I'll give you probably one of my, more interesting moments. Um, <laughs> I, I was with the same friend of mine, the same one that I met the guys in Cheap Trick with. Okay. We went to um, see my uncle, who was a musical director for the show. They're playing our song on Broadway. So I went there and it was really freaking, it was really weird because, um, you know, you had Lucy Arnaz, who is, uh, you know, Desi's and Lucille Ball's daughter. Yeah. And then you had uh, Robert Klein, you know, 
who is a star of this this Broadway play. And this is an excellent, you know, Neil Simon play, really high end, you know, killer, top notch uh, performance. My, my my uncle was a musical conductor and director of the music arrangements and all that. So we walk in through the back door of this theater on uh, trying to remember what street it is, like right near like Times Square, not too far away, like 40 something street. Okay. And uh, there we are. And what was really weird is back, back in that backstage area was Tim Curry. Okay. And also his wife or his girlfriend. And I was like 15 at the time <laughs> and I'm like, or 16 and uh, something like that. And then I'm back there and, you know, I met these people and I was just kind of like a, a state of shock. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a whirlwind. Yeah. Of course. So we're on our way to this restaurant, Sardi's like this high end place that people go afterwards, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And there's celebrities and limousines, et cetera. And so we're backstage. And then, you know, I said hi to, I said hi to the cast. Cause I actually was at shows before my uncle got me into them. And I was like, they, they knew I was my uncle, Larry blanks, uh, nephew, you know? Yeah. It was Neil. Yeah. Larry's yeah. nephew. Hi everyone. You know, so Lucy Arnaz is really sweet, nice. And Robert Klein, you know, all the stars of the show and, and you know, it's worked for him. So he was back there working, you know, it wasn't like, this ain't like, uh, don't bother people, you know? Yeah. You really have to be careful with that. You know, it's this guy's, my, Michael's work. So you have um, Tim Curry, you know, Rocky Horror was huge. Oh, fucking gigantic, sure. And then, and then his girlfriend or his wife, and she's like checking me out. I'm like 15 years old. I'm like, like I'm checking out some other girls that are older than me. They're <laughs> like, the guy's wife is checking me out. I'm like, what the hell? You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just the weirdest Weird. Thing. Yeah. So anyway, it was a weird night altogether. And then we go over to Sardi's and, you know, this is because I can't remember anything. Right. I don't, don't remember a damn thing. So we go to Sardi's and we're, and we're waiting out there by the street. Okay. And there's this fancy restaurant. I'm like, you know, 15, I don't have a lot of cash on me. Right. So I don't know what I could have bought. Maybe a glass of water, probably maybe. without the ice cubes. Cause I probably. didn't have cash for that. <laughs> Tap water. I think I had a subway token and a, and a token to get on the subway and then wanted to get on the bus and get home. Right. And that was about it. And, and maybe $2 for $1 for a slice of pizza somewhere. Yeah. So back then. So then what happens is we go to Sardi's, this limousine open pulls up out of the limousine. The, do the door swings open. Okay. And my friends with his camera. Cause he's, you know, this, this, Photographer, Vinny Safante, Star File Agency. I mean, this guy's all over the place. Magazines, like all the teeny bopper magazines, all the cream and circus and all that back then. Okay. But, you know, the guy would shoot Led Zeppelin. He'd shoot, you know, David Bowie and Paul McCartney and John Lennon. So crazy. He, he took me to, to John Lennon's place when, when I was standing outside the building. Mick Jagger comes running out there in his pink jogging suit with a little. Out of the, what, at the, at the Dakota? Yeah, with the little blue sprinkles on his jogging suit in central park so we started following mick and mick is like you've seen mick run right good luck catching up to mick so we're trying to keep up with him and he's trying to photograph him so i remember he took photos of mick wearing a pink <laughs> pink warm-up suit and, nice. and if you ever see that that was my friend Vinny at the time and that and that's what happened so this is the same guy so we're there at sardi's and out of the out of the limousine the door swings open guess who pops out brooke shields no shit. And at that time in history, on all the bus stops, all of the the posters, yeah, was was Brooke Shields and her Calvin Klein's. 
Of course. They had this, they had this marketing uh, strategy, this thing that they were doing. What's between me and my Calvins? Right. And she I was like topless with her hands, and she had her she had her jeans on. I remember. Well, I remember that campaign. Sure. Topless, and she had her pant her jeans on. She's covering herself. The girl was yeah. a teen. She was yeah. like probably sixteen, and I was fifteen. Yeah. So she jumps out of the car and is Brooke Shields, beautiful, stunning young girl. And I'm right there. And my friend Vinny with his, with his camera, you know, because of the camera, the big old camera, he's kind of removed from it because it's big cameras in the way. I'm right there. And I said, Hey, Brooke, what's between you and your Calvins? <laughs> of course. And I smiled at her. And guess what happened next? What? Her mom gets out of the limo. <laughs> of course she did. It says me. <laughs> awesome. That's yeah. great, dude. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was my my fifteen my fifteen seconds of fame. There it was like, wow, mm. really? You're gonna shut me down like that? I was just trying to, you know, get a phone number, man. Can't can't. Yeah, we, yeah. You got shut we, down by Brooke Shields' mother. <laughs> can't we? Can't we get somewhere? And it's like, holy shit! You know what the hell? It's awesome. <laughs> That was like, that was the end of the parade for that one. Oh Jesus Christ, that's hilarious! Kind of tall anyway. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean she was like, gigantic at that time. Quick, that, that, that whole campaign, like the Blue Lagoon, was like a couple of years before that. Like that was she was huge, man. She's like an Amazon woman. Yes, like an a- Amazonian. <laughs> like, you know, she was beautiful, and what are you going to do? So yeah, I, I was young and had ideas. So. Yeah, listen. You except, go for except it. her mother had other ideas, right? <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> of course, she did. Shut you down, creepy guy with long hair. Well, not as long, but yeah. But yeah, <laughs> nice. Oh shit! So, what are you doing now? I see. I mean, everyone's watching this for I don't know over an hour now, and we didn't point out anything. We just talked about the cool old stuff. Well, yeah, but I mean, let's talk about what's right behind you. Yeah, what well, is vocal firepower? Sure. So I do uh, vocal, vocal coaching, one-on-one, private uh, master vocal sessions. And my experience and my, my philosophy and my methodology is different than the methodology of going to a university or going to a accredited school where you know they make you do scales and exercises. They make you learn music theory. These are all critical, important things. Yes. Right. But they don't teach you certain things and they don't share certain information that is not part of their curriculum. And also going to vocal coaches, which I really didn't till I was after, after I was out of anthrax, because I went to a, a coach for a very short time. It was someone that my aunt had recommended that she went to. And, you know, she was a Broadway singer. She was in my uncle's shows. She was an actress. She was an excellent singer. And at that time, I went to him for a few times. You know, it was very expensive, but he gave me the deal. And, you know, this is after anthrax. So it was just a short time. And, you know, it was very operatic. Learned some techniques that were good. And it's like a, the same old shit. You know, it's like, here's the scales. One, right. two, three, four, four. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five. Boring. So one, two, three, four. You yeah. know, it's like the same old stuff. So, you know, you keep doing that. You'll learn those scales, but you can do that stuff at home. You can learn and work on these, these uh, repetitive scales that kind of go up. It's, it's all mathematical. It goes up one notch, goes up one notch, or goes down. You know, there's certain strategies on how that would, would apply. And, you know, I also 
later on, I had experience working with, here's something you may not know. I worked with Claude Schnell, Dio's keyboard player from Dio's band. Wow. For 10 years, he played with Dio. And uh, Claude and I, we, we worked together from 1996 till 1999, four years. So I would go over to his place Monday through Friday every single day. It was me, Claude, and a Steinway 1884 piano. Wow. So that actually was a, a very uh, broadening and expand, expanding uh, experience as a singer and as a musician because, first of all, I was, having, I was very naked in everything I sang. It was all, there was no, no microphone, just right. there in the room, drywall and piano and vocals. Okay. And, and um, you know, a hard floor. And, um, you know, there was no hiding behind something, you know, it's, it's like, you have to hold the notes, you have to be precise, you have to, and these were his songs. These were not my songs, they were his songs and do it his way. And that's okay. cool. He has his own idea. I respected it. I, I put myself in a position of, okay, I'm a protege. I'm, I'm someone who's working with somebody. This is not about Neil pushing Neil, you know, this is about Claude's songs, Claude's way. And I did that for four years and it's like, okay, when are we going to get this thing out there? You know, when is it coming out? And that was the problem. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, the training to do this and, and some of the uh, classical pieces that he would do, it was a combination of his classical, you know, Claude was a Juilliard school artist and he, you know, he wrote class classically composed pieces as well as, you know, rock pieces and, you know, last in line, that's all Claude, right? That's his, yeah. that's, that's his playing. Okay. Part of that, you know, he wrote some really amazing compositions but the stuff that he was writing in his solo music was more or less like elton john meets meatloaf meets dio it was very epic and it was also like classically influenced so there was some really cool stuff and i have recordings of that but you know it's claude stuff i'm not at liberty to right push my you know my demo tape stuff versions of that out there right. but uh, that was really excellent music and you know i, I had hoped that he would you know, release some stuff. I know Claude went and was working with Musicians Institute and being an instructor there for many years. And, um, but, but really cutting my teeth on, on a different angle, you know, working on the, on the classical side, on the more uh, melodic side. So it was really a classically, uh, you know, almost operatic style of singing, you know, meatloaf kind of vocals or like the male and the female parts. And, right. and also, you know, Melton John, it was just, you know, with the piano and all that. So it really, it opened up the door melodically and also uh, technically in a, in a progressive area as sure. well. So for me today, you know, I do like to sing. I mean, I think where my voice kind of fits in, what I can sing, what I feel like comfortable doing, what I, what I sound good doing to, to what other people tell me or what I feel is, is some of my best stuff uh, you know somewhere in the in the steve walsh kansas mode modality of of progressive singing so when a when a thrash band happens and there's thrash thrash music it's not just barking uh chanting but it's uh not just blah 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 blah, blah. it's it's melodic singing sure and absolutely also, also note selection also notes also the techniques you know i can sing uh all of the soul techniques all of the you know, staircase vocals, like all of the, the stuff you'd hear today, like, and it's not bragging, it's not saying, look at me or anything like that. It's simply, you work at it, you get better at it. You bust your hands, you rip the skin off, eventually you build up some calluses. That's it. And then, and then 
you know, you start learning these other chords and you start getting there. Well, yeah, you, you put the time in, you put 10,000 hours or a hundred thousand hours, you start getting there. Eventually, if you, if you practice perfectly, not just practice, but practice perfect makes perfect. If you practice yep. wrong, it'll make you really good at being wrong. Right. So that's part of the philosophy. My, my philosophy, much like Michelangelo Badio, who's a, you know, someone I've worked with, also a protege and someone who I think is you know, a phenomenal artist, phenomenal player. And Michael and I have you know, worked together. We did NAM Metal Jam for 10 years. We, we, um, you know, he, t- he had me play on his tour, Red Dead Red- Shred Dead Redemption Tour wow. uh, a year ago. Cool, man. And I played with him at NAM this year in 2020. Um, which would be 2021 when everyone sees this, but yes, you know, January of, of 2020. And, um, you know, so there's a very progressive side of my, my style, but also very soulful. So I like to sing Donnie Hathaway. Um, okay. I actually met Donnie's daughter, Kenya Hathaway huh. at NAM actually a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, it was really beautiful to, to meet Kenya. Cause I mean, I have such passion and, and appreciation and love for Donnie Hathaway and, you know, for those who don't really know Donny Hathaway, because, you know, it's all about who's got the most press or who's got the most push out there. Right. Out in society and out, out in the, the, the media and, and so forth or marketing. But Donny is quite an interesting singer. He's a brilliant multi-instrumentalist, p- pianist and vocalist. But Stevie Wonder sounds remarkably close to Donnie Hathaway back in the seven, like 73, 72. Mm-hmm. So Donnie Hathaway, he, he played with Roberta Flack. And for those who don't know, like I'm sure people know, of but some, some folks that are younger that don't know. So he already had hits and he was, you know, he was already hooked into Washington, DC and that whole Virginia and Maryland area where, you know, they're playing all these fancy places back in those days. So he was already hooked in, but he was a brilliant, brilliant artist, but, you know, because of drugs, because of, you know, per, you know, it's not really drugs. It was more like a, a personality issue or something Yeah, that happened. And that, that caught led to other, and, and then not getting paid like other artists, you know, typical blues, typical soul situation where they don't pay the artists enough. And those were the days when that happened more yeah. so. And, you know, and Donnie passed away and I think it was like 33 or something, but wow. the work that he left was so amazing. But it's like, you hear Stevie wonder and it's like, you think that Stevie did it all by himself, and he did. He was a he was a he was definitely the kind of singer, the kind of artist that was, uh, you know, it's just a natural, a natural born genius singer. I mean, genius. Oh, and I met Stevie, wonderful person, and but Donny Hathaway, you you could just tell that there's a Donny Hathaway influence. You could sure. just and you could hear it, and it's like in that era, and for me, like the person that. Um, actually turned me on to Donny Hathaway. Ironically, I jam with that uh, the whiskey at Ultimate Jam Night. Ah, that's awesome. So uh, Jeff, who also plays, uh, you know, very progressive stuff. He played in Glenn Hughes' band. Huh. And so, so actually, turn, you know, I was telling him about Otis Redding. He's like, yeah, Otis is great. You ought to check out Donny Hathaway. And I'm like, mm. Donny Hathaway? I've heard of him. It's not, it's not a different Hathaway. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, wait a second. I did, you know, cause I didn't even have that when I, you know, I knew about Marvin Gaye and Al Green. So I learned about, you know, some of the deeper cut type artists, the ones, you know, and Donnie is, is such a huge influence on, you know, everybody else knows about Donnie Hathaway. I just didn't know about everybody. Right. And 
so anyway, it was really wonderful to meet his family and friends of his family and, and, uh, you know, amazing singers, you know, Kenya Hathaway and Layla Hathaway, just incredible. Yeah. So I'm not just limited to, you know, tunnel vision in one direction. You know, I, I could take the Midtown Tunnel and I could take the Williamsburg Bridge. Right. If I don't like that, I could take the Triborough Bridge. Of course you can. But if I don't like that, I'm sure there's another way I can go. Of course there is. So, so, you know, if you're just limited to one way, then I guess you can flip that and say, oh, well, you should like rap and you should like this other style as well. Actually, there are some rap artists that, I find that are less uh, offensive to me in terms of sampling and having a musical talent, you know, like actually right. doing a melody. And, and it does take some skill to deliver vocals like rapid fire succession, you know, sure. nothing and just, you know, deliver it like an auctioneer. Yeah. Like one, one, do I have one, two, three, one, two, three, four, do I have five, you know? Like, there, like there's a certain skill set to that. And that's there's a hundred percent. There's there's some is, there's some of them that are insane. Yeah, so yeah. doing that, that becomes different. That becomes a skill set sure. as opposed to just babbling bullshit. And right. then the rhyming, the rhyming part of it and, and the skill of the lyrics, that also becomes something. So when you do sure. have some artists out there that that can do those things, those those capabilities and then you have some that might be in, injected into that music where it's just the, the melodic singer like they're just doing like a girl singer or, or you know the male singer but i think biggie smalls tupac you know some of those people that was a little bit more meaningful rap and right. then you know there's other ones there's there's certainly other other yeah. versions there, of it there's yeah there's there's a ton there's a ton of them that just like you were saying before it's like you have to kind of look for them but they're out there and they've been around for a very, very, very long time. They're just underground and they have super loyal followers and they make a living off of it. And they've been doing it for 20 plus years. And then I heard this one, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the song was and I probably don't even have the guy's name right, but uh, this girl, her name is Kate French. And she has, she had this band uh, she was a singer of back in the early 2000s and her husband, you know, he's a guitar player and, you know, he's playing on this rapper, this big rapper's uh, song. And that particular song has got like heavy elements and yeah. on the, on the music side, on the, on the guitar playing side. So it's not really like heavy metal and rap, but it's got good production elements. Yeah. And, and the rapper guy is actually really good at what he does. So, and it's a hit song. I mean, so it's on it works. Board. Yeah. And, and it's, um, so I'm not opposed to having an open mind Right. To music, you know, I mean, I was impressed. Like, I, I'll check something out and say, okay, what's he going to do here? And then it was like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. So, so there is that, that element. And I think what happened with me, Jimmy, is eventually I got to a place where, you know, yeah, I did the thrash, you know, and, and I was in anthrax. And, you know, you guys are coming out in 1987 now, not you, not anthrax, but other bands. They're after the fact. And it's like they're coming out with the same old shit, you know, like, okay impress me do something different it sounds like the same stuff except right. it's a different band and right. okay play every song fast and play it blah, 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 blah. you know right. it's like it's like you heard one dog go blah blah blah, blah bark 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 yeah dog, bark 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 it's like yeah. okay bark 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 go ahead yeah. bark more and then you know later on you had these other bands that came out in the 90s and it was okay we're so tough and we're barking and yeah i just didn't get it but but for me, it was always about having melodic vocals. It was always about having, you know, strong sounding 
music like Accept, like Judas Priest. I mean, I, I appreciated that. You know, Anthrax took things in a direction where they they were trying to be trendy. And to me, I didn't really, you know, I was part of the first wave of punk rock. I was part of, I was there when the Ramones played Statler Hilton in the basement when I was a kid. I was there, you know, at, at uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some of these other places. Well, in the New York scene, you know, I was yeah. there. Uh, you know, with, with all of these different venues, with all of what was there in New York in the 70s and 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, I left there in 85, but I was part of that. And, and really, the punk rock scene was CBGB's. Sure. He was Max's Kansas City, which yeah. the guys in Anthrax were not part of. Right. That I know of. I mean, maybe they... Yeah, I've, I've heard stories of Scott being at Sunday matinees and stuff like that. I'm talking, what I'm talking about is when I was in Anthrax and before, like, gotcha. like, I'm not talking about afterwards. I'm talking about like, where was he in 1982? Oh, okay. With his Pink Floyd jacket or his Pat Benatar or the Who shirt. Right. That's who he's listening to. But, but, you know, and I'm, and it's not knocking him or knocking anybody. It's just that I was listening to the Sex Pistols and I was listening to the Ramones and, you know, there was a guy in school. He was a, a real, um, like ladies man, his name is Tony, he has hair in a DA. He had a green um, Thunderbird car, like a pimp, pimped out, like, yeah. like fancy, you know, but he was like a jock guy and he got all these girlfriends and everybody loved Tony, the girls that is. But I didn't dislike him, but he was like, ha ha ha, look at you. I got a Clash shirt on, the Clash. It was like, had pink on it or green. Right. I had purple, purple pants from Reminiscence in the Village. Right. I had white Capizio shoes. Ha, ha, ha. Look at you. Clown shoes. Ha, ha, ha. Uh -huh. Guess what Tony was wearing the next fucking year? Yeah, the same kind of shit. Tony. Ha, ha, ha. Clown yeah. shoes, Tony. Ha, ha, yeah. ha. Yeah. He wore the fucking same shoes. Yeah, the culture, so, culture trendy asshole. You know what? When you're ahead of the curve and you have an idea because that's your passion, you know, you're not trying to be cool. You're just, that's what you like and you think it's cool. Right. You. And, and to me, the punk rock that was from that, that era was more angst. It was more, it, sure. wasn't, it wasn't just going through the, you know, not phoning it in or, or trying to be heavy, like a heavy metal band. Cause right. to me, that's what that never, that, that hardcore punk was more like trying to be like heavy metal bands. Like, okay. Okay. Judas priest, man. They sound like, uh, you know, unleashed in the East. We can make guitar sound like that. But then, cause that was not the punk rock guitar sound. Right. The punk rock guitar sound was like a, a a, Gib a junior Les Paul Gibson, like a shitty beat up old Gibson or some other guitar, but probably a Gibson. Yeah. Like, like Johnny Thunders. And it was playing it like, da -da 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 like that. And right. it wasn't like, you know, they, they weren't trying to play like, Hey, we're going to, you know, detune and we're going to make the guitar sound through Marshalls and sound heavy. And yeah, they like to have a heavy, heavier, darker sound. But back then it was like, you know, more of alternative was the, the guitar tone. Yeah. And so the, the hardcore punk became more of a heavy metal hybrid punk. Oh, band. yeah. And, and even even now, it's like, uh, this is a hardcore band. Now, this is just a metal band, but you're calling it hardcore for whatever reason. Yeah. Exactly. It's, so they, 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 they really lean towards that hardcore sound. Yeah. And we were writing Armed and Dangerous. I was writing to that song, and I'm like, I'm writing to some of the heavier parts of the song. And I'm like, they're trying to push this hardcore punk idea. And it's like, they're, they're trying to, do it in such a way that was over, overwhelming, not just overbearing, but overwhelming, like, like bullying. 
and, and controlling in that respect. So it's like, it was really hard to write that song to get it done. It was one of the last songs I wrote with the band, but that was an example. And, and um, you know, so they were really trying to push steer in this direction. So right. my, my influence or my writing, my opinion, my, my direction, it was always met with a, uh, you know, a group of four others ganging up on me. Right. So no matter what it was, if it was a good idea, if maybe the idea wasn't as good, I mean, Metal Thrashing Mad was my idea. Hopefully right. it was a good idea. Death Rider, that was my idea. Yeah. Hopefully it was good. I mean, Gung Ho, that was my idea. You know, they said, here, let's do hardcore punk. It's like, uh, well. Gung Ho's a great song, dude. <laughs> we got to take it back to Times Square. Remember, yeah. those, remember the martial art movie I was telling you about? Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't just Kung Fu and it wasn't just martial arts. It was also, you know, war sure. weapons and, yeah. and activity and just, you know, warrior type mentality and, and so forth, survivalist. So to me back then, it's like that was an influence on me and that's where I was taking it. So that's oh. where I got gung ho from. And it wasn't because someone came up with a riff, you know, that's right. not where it came from. Mm-hmm. But, but these are kind of the things that are quintessential for how this stuff happened. Right. And it was, and it was my, my thinking. It's like I was, you know, like something that people don't realize is a chainmail armor. I made all that stuff that I wore on stage. So the, mm-hmm. the, the fistful of metal, the, the glove and the armbands, I made the stuff. And then what happened is I made a belt for each one of the guys in the band. Mm-hmm. Like it took me, it took me hundreds and hundreds of hours to oh, shit. work, work on the coils and with plier, you know, with two sets of pliers and cutting it all and then putting it all together and the art of, you know, chivalry or the actual fastening of making these pieces just out of wire. No shit. And I made all the stuff and I made these heavy, you know, for a couple of guys in the band, I made these real heavy belts and these other ones, I made thinner ones or ones that crossed or what have you. So I thought that I was dealing with people because, you know, my family would tell me, Hey, give everyone benefit of the doubt. Everyone means well, everyone has good intentions. Oh yeah, sure. We know that that's true, right? Everyone has good intentions. Everyone means well. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no subversiveness or criminality in the world, right? Everybody just right. means well. Of course, well, everybody. You know, the whole planet. When you're told that, you know, to, to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, yeah, if they stab you in the throat or the heart, or they, right. they, they, you know, they chop off your head, you know, they just, they mean well, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Well, not true. And not everybody means well. And I wish I would have known better back then, but. All right. Anyway, I, you know, I did what I did, but I was very generous and I made this stuff for the guys in the band. And it's not because I was trying to kiss anyone's ass. I wasn't trying to be, you know, anything like that. I just figured, hey, you know, if I got this stuff on me, it'd be cool if you guys have some of it too. It's on the album. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was a generous act, a kind act to be cool. And it wasn't like, it wasn't appreciated or met with what I thought was a gift, you know, like I gave it as a gift. It's like, yeah, whatever, throw it here. Like, yeah, whatever. Boom. Like they never wore it or cared or wanted to even admit, Hey, thank you. Or, yeah. But it was one of those things. And I was like, well, that's really weird. Yeah. I got all these guys ganging up on me. Like, like when I was on the road in, um, you know, on decisions, when I was on the road in California when we were playing, uh, you know, country club and up in San Francisco at the Kabuki theater and other places, Adams theater down in San Diego. and you know, Pacific Northwest. I started to get sick around San Diego. 
So I was starting to really get sick. It was like a sunny day. Actually, it was that, yeah, it was before, I, I think we played the country, I think we went down there and then we went up north and then we went down to the country club. We played there twice. So it's before I played there, but I got really sick. I got strep throat. And I was in this van with the band and they wouldn't let me sleep. Like they wanted to harass me and they wanted to give me a hard time because I don't know, maybe they were jealous of something. I don't know what it was, but I was just trying to rest, you know, so I could heal up and sing and do a good show for the band Yeah, and, and carry the name forward, you know, represent the band on a good level. But then I, then I read in the, in the press after I was out of the band, Oh, Neil couldn't sing. And Oh, you know, Neil couldn't do this and he couldn't do that. And he's out of the band because he couldn't sing. Yeah. Okay. But so anyway, what happened is I got really sick. I had strep throat, but I still sang. Right. I still had to go on stage with 104 fever in San Francisco. In fact, my uncle was doing a chorus lineup in San Francisco. He was, he was running that show up there, doing the musical direction, conducting of that show with the international group for, for a, a chorus line. So we went out to dinner before. No, actually afterwards, afterwards, he picked me up. But on the way, what happened in San Francisco is I was so sick. I really wanted to go to buy a leather jacket or some kind of thing. One of the stores, you know, San Francisco, they got leather back yeah. in those days. So, but I was so sick. We couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even go to the store. Like I was in a record shop or the record vault and I went somewhere else. I, I couldn't hold it together for very long because I had a fever. So I went yeah. back to the hotel room, some kind of a Airbnb type place. Not, not really, but like a, a very weird old Victorian type hotel place. And it was nice, but I had such a fever. I was in bed right up until 40 minutes before the show. Oh shit. They went and dragged me and they came knocking on my door. I was not dressed. I was in bed with my eyes closed. Like what's going on? Like I, I had a fever. I was really in bad shape. So I had to get up on stage. So the guy who took me to the store or something like that, he thought I had an attitude problem or something. So I was just, I just had 104 fever. That's all. I was just dying. Yeah. And then I had to try to sing on top of it, which I really didn't know how to do on top of, you know, 104 fever and strep throat where, you know, it feels like you got razor blades in your throat. But I had to get through a show where I was going on stage at the Kabuki theater and James Hetfield's jumping on the stage and jumping off. And that's when I got it. It's like these other people were jumping on the stage and I was like pushing them off the stage. Huh. Who the fuck is this person? Like I was at concerts and they jump on the stage. You're not a hot chick. Get the fuck off. <laughs> like, like you ain't coming at me with your boobies. You're coming at me with your fucking sweat, sweat hog, motherfucker. Get the fuck off. And, and then I saw him coming at my guitar player at the time. So little Danny Spitz. And you got this big motherfucker coming at big sweat hog with sweat all over the place. Not some hot chick. And he's coming at the guitar player. So I'm like, okay, well, I got all this 50 pounds of metal on me. Guess what? I pushed him off. Yeah. So then after a while, people started jumping on the stage. They saw me. They just jumped off. They didn't run after me. They didn't want to even come close because they saw right. that I was pushing people. So they, they just, they, they went up and then they jumped off real quick before right. I got because the stage was big enough. And um, so what's, what happens is this kid who drove me, he spits on me. Oh shit. Yeah. Like, like I'm some evil, bad person. Like I'm sick. I'm fucking having strep throat, but that's, you know, so they thought that, that I was a fucking asshole that, that, you know, they're cool and they're spitting on me. One guy. And um, anyway, then when I saw James Hetfield jump on the stage, it's like, okay, so this is what they do up in San Francisco. 
Right. So they were really ahead of their, they were ahead of the curve. You know, they were, they were doing a stage diving thing and that came from punk rock. Sure. But they were doing that thing before most of the rest of the country knew what the fuck it was. Right. So, and, and I was from New York, you know, I didn't see it too much. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a thing yet at that point. Right. Yeah, you know, if a hot chick was jumping on the stage, yeah, you could have all of them jump on the stage. Right. Yeah, completely different era at that point. But sure. if sweat hogs are jumping on stage, go back to Welcome, welcome Back Cotter. Right. Because <laughs> I don't want it. Yeah, I ain't, right. looking to to, I ain't looking to talk to Arnold. <laughs> you know, if it's the hot chick in the class, then to jump up on a stage, no problem. But anyway, that was that was kind of the, the, the thing. So there's there's a perception of what you want to believe and how you want to see it. You know, there's just so much sides to the story. And but, you know, really and truly, you know, with anthrax, you know, there was a lot of uh, innovation. There was a lot of things that, you know, I, breaking the ice, breaking you know, breaking through and, and accomplishing some things. So yeah, that, that, that stage was set, you know, for, for the next person to come in and have a much easier time, you know, we went through some times to try to get to that place. And I really didn't have much of an opportunity or a chance, you know, I wasn't given one. Right. That's the way it went. But what I did while I did it my way and what, what I could do while I was trying, you know, while I was trying, people were trying to force me to do things a different way. Yeah. is that's that's what i established and that's the work that i was able to do in in the couple of years and really i put up with uh some harsh circumstances you know by today's standards it would be you know unacceptable to yeah. say the least you know totally well involved. i mean at the, at the end of the day i mean you 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 are a part of and you contributed to and wrote a lot of a classic legendary record that is one of the first that changed the game, man. Well, there's that. And then there's, you know, other singers doing it and also armed and dangerous gung ho uh, raise hell. I mean, my, my, are my songs. And, um, you know, some of them are more popular than others, whatever. So, but, but it's not even, it's like when I wrote those songs, the way that the, that they, that it went is I wasn't, it wasn't like the band got together and we're in a room. Like these guys would get together in a rehearsal room, turn up as loud as possible and you couldn't even have a conversation or, or do anything constructive. It was just, you know, blasting the same shit over and over and over and over again for four hours right. Monday through Friday. And then, you know, they wouldn't ever do extracurricular stuff or hang out on the weekends or get together. It was always, you know, Scott with his girlfriend, Marge. And that's, you know, like everyone was else. And he was always going on a trips here or there or somewhere. And then, you know, Greg Walls, who is a guitar player, lead guitar player, and then uh, Greg D'Angelo and then Danny Lilker. And Danny lived in the neighborhood. Scott lived in the neighborhood. So did uh, Greg Walls. Gre- uh, Greg D'Angelo was a little further down towards towards uh, uh, Little Neck or Great Neck. He was, you know, came from a wealthy family, had a lot of you know, fancy cars and things like right. that. But fancy drum set. One of the reasons he got in the band. But he was an excellent drummer, and you know that that was the band back then. We did. There was a little bit of socializing back in those days. Right. So we'd hang out and go to Howard Johnson's, go eat together, hang out a little bit, go to, you know, so that's what, but there was a point where I became excluded from any kind of interaction. So, you know, what happened once Charlie joined the band, Scott and Charlie, they play cards, they go and hang out with uh, Charlie's nephew, which was Frankie. And, you know, they had their click going and I wasn't part of it. It's just that simple. Yeah. It's just, you know, they had an idea, they had a plan. It was like, you know, when people make plans and you're not in the room then you're yeah. not part of the plan. Right. And, and, and it's as simple as that. And it's kind of like, 
there's really not a whole lot to explain. It's that I was getting, I had ideas that were radical. I had ideas that people paid attention to. Obviously, Armed and Dangerous, people still seem to like that song. Yeah. I guess I did something all right. And Gung Ho, you know, I mean, those are my songs. I mean, they weren't, it wasn't Gung Ho or Armed and Dangerous without me writing it. Right. It was a riff. And two riffs, like in in Armed and Dangerous, like it wasn't all at once, you know. They put the the softer part, the ballady part, you know, these things kind of came together. It wasn't just one piece. Right. So it became that, you know, with the dynamics. And so in in the process of songwriting, you know, I've evolved to a place where, you know, I understand that, you know, there's different ways to approach it. You can write lyrics and say, Hey, I want to write music to these lyrics. You can write music and say, I want to write lyrics to this music. You can write a chorus melody and say, Hey, I want to write this chorus first, and this is a message. Right. Or you can have a concept and say, I want to write this concept. So there's different ways to approach it. And, you know, there's sophisticated ways of writing, like the band Kansas, where right. they have instrumentation. They have, you know, it's, it's like you're almost, you, you feel like you're at a movie, the way some of the music sounds. Sure. And then there's, and then there's uh, you know, Green Day. Right. You know? Yeah. And then there's a metal band. Then there's a fast thrash metal band that just wants to go balls to the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's different styles, and and yeah. you know, but I am definitely about the, the the dynamic songwriting, and I'm also about you know dynamic singing, but also about you know riffs and hooks and things like that, and and doing it what's right for the song. And you know, sometimes you write a song, and it's like you know that's a really great soulful song that would be perfect for. Not for Neil Turbin Eastlos. Right. But it'd be good for Whitesnake. Right. There you go. <laughs> you know, like, 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 you know, writing a song about love again, you know, it's a perfect yeah. song for Whitesnake, but it's this ain't like for this band. And there's right. been times where, you know, with Bleed to Hunger. So Jonas Hornquist and myself, you know, so it was this idea, you know, we did Death Riders and we were working on the songs and it's like, we got this other song. He says, I got a couple of other songs. And it's like, this is really like more like, Deep Purple with keyboards. It's more like a 70s classic hard rock. Okay. With, with some, you know, outstanding guitar playing and, you know, big, big arena sound. So it's not right for Death Riders. Right. So let's branch off into something else and do something cool and yeah, different. And that's and kind and of how Bleed the Hunger. And he had all these songs and now great. we got a whole album, a whole album, more than an album worth of songs. And the, and the songs are really solid. I mean, really... I mean, people that hear it, they're like, oh, my God, you know, when can I join this band? Because this is like major material. Yeah. And yeah, so it's 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 great. And we just need to get to that and get it out there. OK, but, well, there's uh, an Instagram page for it, right? I believe. Yeah, the yeah, there's also Reverb Nation. You can check out some of the songs that okay. are there. So who, everyone's listening and watching. Oh, it's 20. It's 2021. Just type in Bleed the Hunger and you'll find it. Yeah. And then also Death Riders are songs out there. And, uh, you know, with my solo band, Neil Turbin Eastlos, you know, we played internationally. We played in, in Mexico. Bands played in other places. Uh, you know, we played with Whiplash and Toxic uh, in 2019. So nice. today, from today, it would be a year ago. In three hours, it won't be. Or, yeah, four or five hours, it yeah. won't be anymore. But the idea is that, yeah, we, we've been out there doing that. Then I had, you know... As a solo artist, I toured in Poland, I toured in Czech Republic, I toured in uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, all over Mexico, U.S., you know, and other countries, and in additional countries, you know, Austria and 
you know, with Death Riders, all, all, you know, all types of places in Europe. Been yeah. to Japan, played there with Death Riders, played in, uh, you know, festivals and, and yeah. played Monterey Metal Fest in 2005. I mean, that's all awesome. against you, cancer. You, you, see, you see, kid, he's not only the anthrax guy, he's been busy. <laughs> well, I've been, I've done more gigs and played more places around the world and done more stuff after anthrax, after leaving anthrax. So, oh, of course. Really, Really, Anthrax is a very small part of, of um, my my track record and my my background is. But you know, if that's what people want to affiliate with me, then okay. You know, I'm not ashamed yeah. of it, and I created some stuff like maybe the word metal thrashing mad, and you know, maybe that's where the word thrash metal came from in Kerrang magazine from Malcolm Dome and Javier Russell, who very well possible. Yeah, they they talked about that, but you know, from from my idea, you know, that was a lyric that I had and, and just a concept. And, you know, when I write today, you know, I still am the same guy who wrote those same songs. So even if it's a melodic song, I mean, I can, another thing that's a challenge is writing in different genres. That's another thing that can be like, imagine writing a pop song versus a rock song versus a metal song. Right. So there's differences and there's different types of, of nuances. And, you know, I don't think it's wrong to do that. It's just, you know, you don't want to play a pop. I mean, there's pop songs that are in metal bands. Like you have the band Ghost. Right. You know, you got like pop, rock, metal. Like it's kind of a combination of, of these things. And I think it's a, it, there's, a, there's a finesse of, of doing that. And from, from my standpoint, I'm all about the songwriting. I look at, you know, I like uh, great singers. I like Johnny Lindquist from Nocturnal Rights. And um, I'm trying to think of, of this uh, other band. Is it called Fatal Smile or something? Uh, Mm. I probably have it wrong, but, you know, very thin Lizzie oriented. Okay. And a great singer. And, and, you know, I appreciate, you know, I, like Jimmy Barnes, you know, Australian guy, Sebastian, a pop singer, you know, sang with Steve Cropper. You know, I like these kind of singers that just like they're, they're, they're prodigies. A friend yeah. of mine who's, who, who I uh, booked in LA, who was opening for Paul McCartney for, you know, live nation. And she, her name is Fatai. She played, uh, she was on the voice and she, she had this, just this, she's a prodigy. In other words, like at 23 years old, I mean, the girl could sing the phone book. Unbelievable. Just, wow. just incredible. And like, where do these, where do these folks get it from? It's like some people that train to do it, they have to work really hard, really, really wow. hard. And you can get, you can get to that place. But some of these people are like out just of the box. They're out of the box and they're like a dragster. Like they're 300 yeah. miles, 350 miles an hour. Like, how do you catch that? It's like, boom, what, the, yeah. what the hell was that? You got this born with that shit, man. Yeah, like a prodigy. Like you had Otis Redding, who was singing with Steve Cropper and you know his band back in the '60s, and like it was it was a serious band and a serious singer, and he could move. He had the whole package. I mean, the whole band was killer. Steve Cropper, you know, all these great songs in the Memphis studios there, and 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 then you know who's going to fill those shoes? Nobody. 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 Nobody filled Otis's shoes. Then along comes this kid. Guy Sebastian, he does this tour in 2007 and the Memphis tour, singing all those Otis songs. And not only did he, like, how are you going to do it? But not only did he do it, but he took it to another place and he was amazing. And of course, doing his own stuff is more pop. It's more like contemporary, even rap, even, you know, some of the current type of approach. But as, as a singer, phenomenal. I mean, you can't touch it. And, and what's ironic is that his, his range and his singing is like in a similar place for me. So I really appreciate that and and you know you're probably not going to hear that from 
people that are in the metal, you know what I mean? Like, no, you're not. How can you, how can you appreciate a singer? Well, look at Aretha Franklin, you know? Right. There's no denying someone that's like that. I actually had the, the pleasure and the opportunity. I did a memorial about a year ago and a month uh, for a fellow rock musician, a friend, and um, I actually sang with um, the bass player from Aretha's band. Wow. And, and um, also with the singer who is singing backups for not only GNR and Cinderella, but also Pink Floyd and other singers, you know, like all these backing singers. And it was cool because like, yeah, you know, people know that I sang in anthrax so they know that I sing metal. Right. But, you know, when I was singing with them, it was like a completely different ball game. Yeah. And actually that's on vocalfirepower.com. So if people wanted to see that video, it's actually on the site. That's the one video on the front page of that. Okay. So, so you could check that out, but it's like, sure. you know, I don't know if you'd associate metal thrashing mad death rider panic and, and death from above and arm and dangerous and gun <laughs> with that. but you know, it's excellent singing and, and effective singing is, is effective singing and right. having, and having that interaction where you have other singers that you're working with. And, you know, I didn't really understand that. And it took, a, it took time to get to a place like that. So as an artist, you grow and you learn how to interact with others and, 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 you know, it's a give and take. It's not just like here, I want to talk the whole time and you can listen. No. Right. And I've done interviews like that where, you know, you just let them talk. And I know I got stuff to say. So I know it's like hard as an interviewer, like you're, you want to ask questions. And then like the guy goes off the freaking road. Yeah. And, you know, but, this, but this is cool because I'm just listening because you have a wealth of knowledge and this is easy shit. Well, I didn't want to talk about the same old stuff. I, I figure. I don't blame you. Oh, of course not. I don't uniqueness, blame you. uniqueness and, and, something that sets this apart from other interviews is really important. It's not Absolutely. about talking about other people. It's just more about information that's interesting and yeah. compelling and, 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 you know, even in, even, even something that's inspiring. Yeah. And, and to me, it. that's what it's always been about is to inspire. Like I've always been inspired by other artists to reach further, like to have a spirit of excellence and to get it to the next place and right. whatever I do. And that's why I wouldn't just throw something out there just to have it out. Cause some people are just looking for a pat on the back. Other people are looking to get chicks. Other people yeah. just care about the money. They'll phone it in. I would do yeah. none of those. Yeah. You right. know, it's nice to have chicks. It's nice to have the money. It's nice to have the recognition, but what's more important is, you know, having the product. So you feel like, Hey, yeah. integrity, integrity, there's, there's accomplishment of this is what I wanted to do. And this yeah. is, and sometimes there's bands that have those components, the wheels in motion to make that happen. But when you're doing all of it on your own and you don't have a lot of cooperation or help, sometimes there's not um, an opportunity to make that happen. Right. And that's, and that's really been the situation, you know, like I've had some of the pieces in place, but not all of them. And, you know, like, unless someone wants to pay for it, then don't bitch about it. You know, exactly. like I'm doing best I can and I keep on doing what I do and I'm not going to, you know, yeah. I'm not going to go to a record label and say, okay, well, here, tell me what to do. I'm going to go to them and say, here's my tracks. Here's the right. product. Would you like to distribute it? Would you like to put it out there? It's a done deal. It's already been yeah. done. And, and that's not because there's an ego or there's some kind of overconfidence. It's simply that I know what I'm doing now. I know how to write. Right. And I know how to kind of tailor my writing. I mean, Frankie Benali, you know, he asked me to write a couple, co-write a couple of songs and on, on the last Quiet Riot studio album on, on uh, Hollywood Cowboys. And what was interesting is you know, I had my idea what I thought I would do for that and write. And he gave me certain songs that already had riffs. They're already structured. So all I was doing was writing the vocal melodies and the lyrics and trying to be creative within that, 
you know, that was more confine, confinement because yeah. when you have an open palette, an open, you know, an open canvas, the whole thing's open. But when you're, uh-huh. you already got like a tuning, it's a riff, it's already, it's, it's more consolidated that way. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, that's, and that's a quiet riot song. And that's, huh. so they, they, they figure they give me these heavy songs. They figure, Oh, Neil, he's a heavy guy. We'll throw right. this in. And I mean, that's what Frankie said and more or less. And, God, God rest his soul, because he's yeah. a great person. Sad that he passed. Really unfortunate. It is. But, uh, I really was blessed that I had a chance to, to perform with Frankie on stage. Oh, without a doubt, man. To record with Frankie Incredible. back in the eighties. I recorded with him in nineteen eighty six on the Cooney Mask album, and then on, on songs I co-wrote, and and then also having the opportunity to, um, you know, sing backups. Like I, I was totally surprised that I was that I was going to be able to, uh, you know, sing on a Quiet Riot album, not as the lead singer, but as backing. And, great, and, dude. and, and what happened at first is he said, um, okay, Neil, here's this one song. And I thought, okay, I'll work on this song. And it was one I thought I would do excel at, and it went fast. Then I worked at the second song and it was a little bit harder, but the second song was actually one that I wrote, which I had an easier time with. And that was Change or Die on the quiet ride album. That was really a natural flowing song for me. And then um, they, and he loved the song. I mean, the response I got was, this is, you know, fantastic. The label loves it. We love it. And then um, the other song I submitted and that song was a little bit more tongue in cheek, you know, rock and roll kind of uh, a cliche, too many okay. cliches. Yeah. So, you know, Frankie says to me, he says, Neil, um, you know, it's not quite what we're looking for. It's not quite, but he knew that I did this other song. It was in the, in, right in the pocket. So, and he was in a big rush. Like he was, it's like, you got to get this done. Like we don't have any time. Mm-hmm. And at first it was like, I asked him for, like, he wanted me to sign it, you know, non-disclosure and all that. So he couldn't talk about it, say that I'm, you know, tell anyone, yeah, you're on a quiet right album or anything like that. I wasn't looking to do that. And I didn't say anything until, you know, he or he already announced it. Right. That I was part, even part of anything that I co-wrote something. So, and I didn't know I was going to be singing on it. I mean, so at first he just, at first it was like, okay. So at first I thought it was an explosion and that we weren't even going to work together on it because he said, you know, well, Glenn Glenn Hughes didn't ask for all this and Glenn Hughes didn't (laughs) ask for something in writing. It's like, all I was, I just asked him, what about the copyrights? What about the, is there pay or any of that? Or is there, you know, it's just normal questions. Like, Hey, you want me to come work, work at your building there? Jimmy, you need me to work on your show. Right. Uh, Can I ask a couple of questions? Like if I give you content, you know, is is there copyrights, trademarks? Is there patents? Is there, is there any compensation? Is there, you know, do we, like, in other words, asking those questions that are behind the scenes, it's business, you know, business sure. is business. So I asked those questions with Frankie and, and it wasn't on the phone. It was all through email. And he just flipped on me. He just, he just like Glenn Hughes didn't need anything. And, right. and I knew Glenn was on the album, you know, the, the previous, one of the previous albums. And it's like, yeah, Glenn Hughes, man, of course. I know Glenn, he's a friend. And, you know, uh, I wasn't out to ask Frankie questions either. It's just, that I was just curious. you like, you know, is there, yeah. Right. If, if I write something, do I get compensated for it? If I contribute something, you know, I mean, how's that going to work? Is there a contract? So anyway, 
he sends me over the NDA. It's like, needs it right away. Okay. I signed that. And then, okay. You got like, I need this track right away. So hurry up. <laughs> so the first one I started to work on, I thought it was simple. I it was a cliched one. I started to work on it. And then I put that one down for the second one. And the second one became, you know, change or die. And that's the one that I really felt strongly about at first. And then I, then I worked on the next one. He said, okay, you got this one. Can you get the other one done? Another week, you know, so it took me a little longer, two weeks. I turned it around and then another week went by and he didn't like it when I turned it in. He's like, nah, this is not, this is a cliche. You know, it's like, you don't got to sing it. <laughs> it wasn't James Durbin who got to sing it. It wasn't you that got to sing it. Like if you sang it, you're not the singer in the quiet riot. James Durbin was the singer at the time. Right. So, it's like, so it's like, I understand. So at the same time, I happened to be going through some, some issues with um, this band that I was working with, this, this tribute band of sorts. And these people were just gnarly, 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 gnarly. So, you know, if you think that just one band is going to be gnarly to you and you're, you're immune to it, like you just got to be on the lookout because there's more. Like, like the subversiveness, the, the insidious type of folks are out there. I just, you know, it's like, yeah, exorcist, get back. Crazy. Like, like I, I deflect that shit. But anyway, yeah. these guys, these guys were unpleasant to give them to be, to be polite about it. And so after I did a lot of work for them, we did a, a bunch of work together and then they were just horrible. So it's like, okay, well, I didn't know about you guys. Now I know. Right. So my lyrics turned, my lyrics changed from, the lyrics changed from um, tongue in cheek, rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and chicks and stuff. And it turned into um, Insanity was the name of the song. Okay. Hey, listen. <laughs> from, one, from one end of the spectrum to the and, other. And, and the lyric is living the, living the life of insanity. You're pushing me over the edge, can't you see? There you go. And you can hear those lyrics and get a sense of what the song is about, but it's, mm. uh, you know, it really, it, it was a biting, typical Neil Turbin type of lyric. Or, or, you know, I have that kind of a, an approach right. on some songs and that's what that lyric turned out to be. And they really liked the song. And then what they did with the song, it became even more interesting when they mixed it. And, and then Frankie comes back to me after, because I wasn't singing on anything. And he says, uh, Neil, change your die. Do you have the, uh, do you have the, do you have the vocals that you did? Like, in other words, can you send those, those vocal tracks? Oh, and by sure. the way, cause, cause James wants to hear those and, you know, copy them or whatever, like sing what I was singing, get down to the, the track. And then can you send the lyric sheets and can you, um, oh, and can you send a photo? Like a photo? Like, what the fuck? Like, I thought, I thought, Frankie, I thought you hated me. Yeah. Sorry. Nah, that's fine. I thought you hated me. <laughs> in, other, in other words, like two weeks ago, you're ready to strangle me. And now it's like, can you send me a photo? Like, holy shit. So then he tells me, hey, we're putting your photo on the album. And, and also James Bunton and also one of the other guys that wrote, um, you know, co-wrote on the album. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is totally unexpected and unbelievable. Cool. You know, quiet yeah. right album, you know, number one with a bullet, you know, bang your head. I mean, metal health will drive your head. So I'm like, wow, that's totally cool of you, Frankie. Thank you. And, and it's like, oh yeah. Can you send me your backup vocals on this other track insanity? Cause we're putting it on the album. We want to use both of the songs. Okay. So 
that's how it went from, Hey, you know, Frankie wants to kill me. And now he, he wants to hug me because now like I'm on the last, you know, recorded quiet riot album with yeah. Frankie Benali. And it's like, um, you know, I mean, it was no, it was no easy walk in the park. You know, I mean, very demanding, very high expectations, high level. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah, high level band. I, I mean, I had to step yeah. up to the plate. Like, you know, if you think that it was, but I learned a lot. It's like, I learned some things and, you know, it's nothing to, to knock on, on anyone there. It's like, this is a pro band and it's like their expectations and to, to be able to step up to the level that was expected. And the fact that not only did I have one song, but two songs and, they gave me the time to finish it. He gave me the opportunity to get the lyrics straight. He gave me the opportunity to have my picture on there and, and to also, you know, um, have me redo the song. Cause he had to wait again for me to yeah. redo the song again. And if I played you the both versions, it'd be like, you're kidding. This is the first version. And the second version is totally a different approach. Right. And that's gotta be one of the hardest things as a, as a writer and as a singer to do is to rewrite the melodies, the vocal melodies to the same song, right. and make it sound better and change it up and, and just take it to a different, you know, come from a different perspective. And sometimes that kind of work is what makes you better. That's sometimes what I would call the spirit of excellence, what, what takes you to a place where you have to, you have to push it to a place where you never thought you'd go. Right. It makes you climb up that mountain and makes you, you weather the storm and, and get there. And I don't know, I, I feel like that is, is uh, where I'm coming from and, and, and working with death riders, bleed the hunger, screaming soul demon, which is a soul band rock and soul, you know, uh, working with Eric Stone on bass. He plays the band called Shovelhead from Florida. And also Nate Montalvo, who's over in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, Jeff Besserill over in Mexico City on the keyboards. And Patrick Johansson from Ingve Malmsteen and Wasp on the drums. So we were awesome. working on that. And then my band, Neil Turbin Eastlos in, in, East, in East LA right now. Uh, we're one member short of a lead guitar player, but we're filling that spot quickly. Um, one of our lead guitar players, Frank Castellum, uh, he's uh, you know amazing. We've been together for, I think, a year and a half with this lineup now. And then Dino Gonzalez on the, on the drums, amazing drummer. He's only 16. Wow. Phenomenal drummer. He also has a, a great death metal band called Putrescence. Nice. And they have a couple of releases out already. And then, uh, you know, um, my bass player, Kevin. Um, God, my brain is going like this. And yeah. Well, dude, you're you're incredibly busy, and and I don't know. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it that way, yeah. but well, yeah. I mean, well, it seems like you do it. I mean, you have so much going on, and and it's it's all good shit, man. That's the band based in L.A., and we're we're uh, you know working on recording Fistful of Metal alive, and that's okay. uh, all of the Fistful and Arm and Danger songs that I was involved with, and um, also maybe a, a, a tidbit that was never out there before maybe something that you know people ah, might, there you uh, go maybe something that people might also be interested in and uh so we're working on that uh you know that's that's coming along it's not moving super quick in terms of that because we want to make sure we have you know the, the fifth person in that right um but but uh you know getting the rhythm tracks done i mean we're ready to do that we've got it all kind of mapped out so we're ready to get that going yeah. so that's probably the next step there the screaming soul demon thing we're we're um you know, we played on a couple of radio stations already. We played on, uh, you know, one in Orlando, Florida, and one in San Diego. So, you know, with the restrictive scenario out there, it's like yeah. we're not a lot of gigs. And also our geographies were spread out. So we did it in a collaborative method. So we got together last December and 
kind of came up with this idea and we started to work online and play as a band online. And that's how this kind of formulated and came together. Okay. And, um, you know, so that one is, is fun. And, you know, of course, the rock and soul is really a reflection of, of as well of, of myself as a singer songwriter. So I play rock and soul songs and I play on, on acoustic or on my uh, Gretsch uh, Black Falcon. I'll play these songs and, you know, I've got Les Pauls and Marshalls and Diesels and Engels and things, but I also, you know, play the singer songwriter aspect yeah. because I can, I can play a set and sing and play guitar and do that. And that's, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a prodigy. I wasn't a natural anything, but I worked hard to do both of those things. And, you know, I'm still working at it, but yeah. that's what I do. And it's a passion. It's what I love to do. And it's, it's a great thing right now with uh, the way that the online scenario is with live streaming. So I haven't done a ton of it, but that's kind of one of the directions that, you know, carrying the song by yourself as a single person, carrying a song, singing it and playing guitar. You know, I always looked up to Gary Moore. Not that I could play guitar anywhere like that. I mean, I'm just playing chords, but that's, you know, there's a lot to aspire to. And that's, that's a good direction. And, and for me, you know, I'm still a thrash metal singer. So there's nothing changing in that department. I'm still doing that and doing it hard and I'm ready to go thrash it out, you know, awesome with the best of them and, and also singing the classic hard rock stuff. So, I mean, I can handle singing, uh, you know, rainbow deep purple type songs, Kansas. I mean, that's in my, my wheelhouse and, um, mm -hmm. you know, as well as the, the heavy, the thrashing hard stuff and, and as well as the, the Donny Hathaway, the soul singing yeah. stuff. I mean, I'm singing, uh, Rihanna, I'm singing, uh, you know, stuff with just piano. I mean, I was singing over at the sunset marquee hotel. Wow. Me and Dave, Dave Schultz from Berlin, the band Berlin and Wang Chung. So he's playing piano. I'm singing and it's just us. And it's no, no microphone. No, it's like people talk over you. You got to get their attention. You do yeah. it. So you gotta, you gotta have that experience. So, so again, it's like the experience working with Claude Schnell, that's where it became very useful. Yeah. You know, singing with just a piano, like you got to sing over that big grand piano. You got to be able to belt it. So that's where vocal firepower comes in, you know, teaching people, how do you sing without a microphone? How do you sing when you got strep throat? How do you sing when people are bullying you and you got no sleep and you're on tour and you haven't right. slept properly? So they can just go to vocalfirepower.com and they can like book a session with you or whatnot? Correct. Correct. Awesome. And, you know, there's some, some discounts and things like that. And also... Okay. We'll check you know, out the website. Yeah, what they're going to get from me is it's not like, oh, wow, it's the first singer from Anthrax, blah, blah, blah. That, it's not about that. It's not about anyone getting a pat on the back. It's about someone who is either a advanced, an intermediate, a beginning singer, a kid, someone who wants to learn good behavior right out of the gate, learn the right way to do stuff. And, and my methodology is like, why are you not doing homework before you even have a first session? Why are you right. not working on something? Like, if you want to be better, like, like that guy who was singing with uh, Steve Cropper when he was 22 years old or 23. Mm -hmm. I mean, Otis Redding was you know, established, but this kid came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he worked hard to get there. He also had the natural prodigy gift. You know, he was also gifted, but it's like yeah. my friend, Zai. she's gifted. She's so gifted, but she works hard. She works yeah. so hard. And it's like, when you, when I asked her, here's, here's, here's the closing um, note. So I said, Fatai, tell me Fatai, I'm listening to your music. I'm listening to the way you sing, you play guitar so well. And I got a guitar just like her. I got this little mini Matins from Australia. You can play it with your fingers. It's really nice. I mean, I got, you know, Martin. I've got, I had a Gibson Hummingbird. I got rid of it. I, it's just not the right guitar for me. I have a, a Loudon, which is a hand cut 
guitar, real, you know, from Ireland and a church, really beautiful sounding stuff. So meticulously trying to get the right instrument, the right sounding stuff. So she, so this guitar she had, she let me play her guitar. She was totally cool. I mean, this is the one she played on stage with Paul McCartney in front of opening up for his band. I mean, she played, you know, she plays with her fingers, sings really well. So I'm like, okay, I got the same guitar she had because it sounded so good to me. And it turns out that it was a great choice because it really works well. And it's also good for travel. And it's also great electronics. I mean, it's just killer. But the thing about Fatai, I said, Fatai, what do you do? How do you prepare? What do you do? Like, how, you sing so amazing. She's singing backups for Guy Sebastian. I mean, first of all, Guy is an amazing singer. He's a right. judge on The Voice Australia. He's, uh, you know, incredible. I don't have to sell his, his, his worth. I mean, he's, you know, how many ARIA awards has he got over there? How many, you know, the equivalent of, you know, top level stuff here in the state. So just an amazing performer, amazing singer. Great. I said, Fatai, what do you do? What do you do to prepare yourself? What do you, you know, you must be like playing guitar every day, working on, she's like, <laughs> she was playing the Roxy Theater on Sunset Strip for Live Nation. I, I asked her this question. She's like, she starts giggling, covering her mouth. <laughs> this is, I play video games. She's 23. It's insane. Yeah, she's like, uh, I don't know, Gen X or millennial or something, one or the other. But she's, she's so, she's a prodigy. Yeah. And, and the thing that I never understood is like, how, how do you get these kind of, how do you get there? How do you become Stevie Wonder at five years, you know, nine years old, singing, dancing? People just, people just have that thing. And that's, that's the same thing with the sports players. Yeah. So you got these guys that are like, you know, the kid was five years old and you knew he was going to be a superstar. Yeah. Because the way he could, he was athletic and the way he could do it. And you knew that this kid could sing. Like, I know this girl, she's like, I think she's probably about 16 or 17 now, but she was like 13. And she was singing like Stevie Nicks perfectly. Like, wow. Like, like, she's 13. Like, she, didn't, she might have had a music lesson once. Yeah. But, but there's those kind of people. So it makes it harder for guys like me who got to work really hard to try oh, to get. Of course. <laughs> but, but because, Jimmy, I worked hard to get to whatever place I'm at. I, don't, I, I may not know. I don't know everything. Right. But I know something. Yeah. And the something that I know, that's what I can teach through vocal firepower. Awesome. And to me, my whole thing is I could teach people to sing like Bruce Lee hits. That's my thing. Awesome. Because, because if you understand the, the energy transfer, you understand the, the, the functionality. It's not just, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a certain spirituality. There's a certain physics. There's a certain quantum physics. There's, there's mathematics. There's different things. There's algorithms going on. There's, there's stuff going on. There's shit going on. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not wrapped inside of that, understanding it, looking at it, like I'm, I'm looking right at it and trying to, you know, break it down and understand it. That's how I can share that. And that's the difference of going to, you know, some college professor, someone that's going to, you know, teach you theory and Phrygian mode and, and Lydian mode and, and Mixolydian mode and all that. And that's important. And whatever that stuff is. If somebody that's, music doesn't know. that's music theory. And you're going to find that in certain types of songs. Right. And then, and then you're also going to find, uh, you know, scales. But this is not an exercise to sing the Star Spangled Banner and put too many notes in the places that don't fit. Right. It's a matter of having listening. And, and you know, if you're going to add something, make sure you're experienced enough to sing the song right in the first place before you're going to change it, right? Right. So Please go to vocalfirepower.com and learn from this guy. Well, yeah. Listen, I, I got to throw out my sponsors real quick, and then I have one more quick question for you because we're going on two and a half hours. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even have a beer yet. 
<laughs> Listen, <laughs> it's been nine hours. All right, check it out. I just got to throw out my sponsors. Um, Dead Sled Coffee. Follow them on Instagram at Dead Sled Coffee. If you go to deadsledcoffee.com and you put in the promo code Brooklyn Blast, are you a coffee guy? You know, I love coffee. I do drink right. it. I, I tend to drink uh, Hawaiian coffee because it doesn't upset you as much. But uh, they, Well, they have several different blends. They have tea. They have cold brews, all of that. Deadsledcoffee.com. And if any order over $40, it's free domestic shipping. And if you put in promo code Brooklyn Blast, you save 15% off your order. Then there's a local record store, Generation Records, located at 210 Thompson Street here in the West Village. Follow them on Instagram at Generation Records. If you go to generationrecords.bigcartel.com, there is a mail order. You know, they have a, a website where you can buy stuff. But they've also survived this whole pandemic thing that's going on. So they're back open. So if you're able to go to the brick and mortar spot, once again, they're at 210 Thompson Street in the West Village. Go support them because they've been around since 1992. And they, they're like the last guys on the block as far as records, vinyl, all that stuff. And then last but not least, New Republic Printing. Um, screen printing, embroidery, vinyl stickers, and buttons. They've been around for like 15 years plus. Um, NewRepublicPrinting.net. And the awesome thing about them is I, I've had several different clothing lines. I've made podcast shirts, this and that, every once in a while. But what's awesome about them is that there's no setup fees. There is no screen fees. And if you have your order shipped to any commercial address, it is free. UPS ground shipping. NewRepublicPrinting.net, New Republic Printing on Instagram. Now I have one more quick question for you. This goes up on YouTube raw, just how it is, how we started, how we end that. And it goes up on the Facebook group that I have, but the audio version, I will put my intro on and I will have to ask you, since it's your episode, you have to close this. I'm going to tack it onto the end of the audio version you need to pick a song of yours of any band or whatever, whether it's an anthrax song, whether it's any kind of song you want. If I don't have it, then you have to send me the file and I will tack it on to the end. So it's your choice. I need a song with Neil Turbin. Okay. I'm going to give you two songs because two songs is fine. Everybody else gave you one. So I got to, I got to step up to twice that. Give me two. And, and, I'm gonna, and the two songs I'm going to give you is one off my solo album and another song I did with uh, Jack Frost. So okay. the first one is, is, is called Keep the Fire. That's from my solo album yep. from 2001. Yeah. And, and that one, um, I think it'd be cool so people can check that out. Threat Con Delta. Yeah. And then there's also a song I did with Jack out of the cold, Jack Frost. It's called Crucifixation. Okay. So, so the reason I give you these two songs is because people have heard the Anthrax songs before, but that I've written, but they will probably have less exposure to keep the fire and okay. also crucifixation. And, you know, if you want to hear like hard singing and melodic singing and also screaming, I mean, there's both of those things in the, in the songs and there's attitude and, and vocal firepower. So I think, you know, it'll be worth checking it out. It'll give them so something to do to check out. And then after they're done checking that out, they can go to Reverb Nation, check out uh, Neil Turbin or Death Riders or Bleed the Hunger. There you go. And, and uh, also, you know, Screaming Soul Demon, Neil Turbin Eastlos. So there you, there you have it. And you have to say, I, I, can, I, I, have, I have Keep the Fire, but Crucifixation, you have to send me that MP3. Sure. All right. Get that to you. Yeah, get that to me because I'm going to send this off. I'm going to get it all, you know, nicey nice. And we're going to put it all together and then we're going to release it in a couple of weeks. 
we like nicey nice. We like we like to check out that dead sled coffee and yes, uh, the record store. What's the name of that again? Generation Records. Generation Records. I wish I could go to a record store. I forgot what one looks like. They're incredible. Generation Records is incredible. It's two floors, vinyl. It's it's incredible. And then and then you have a printing company which New, Repu- uh, New Republic Printing. We need we need shirts. We need uh, stickers. We need patches. You know. Yeah. New Republic right. Printing. My man. Thank you, Thank you Jimmy, and wishing you a, a very blessed and, and very happy, healthy, and rocking new year in 2021. Hopefully for everybody Absolutely. out there listening, it, it, it's a much better year for everyone. Yeah. Wishing you all blessings and and uh, love energy. Yeah. Love energy. Right. That's right. And all that same back to you. And thank you so much for your time, bro. This was fucking awesome. Thank you so and, much. Uh, I don't yeah, do a lot of I, interviews, but I mean, for, with other folks other than the metal voice, but yeah. um, we, we didn't really talk about that, but we could say, if you want to check out some of my interviews that I've done yes. with some folks, please go to the metalvoice.com and there's uh, about 80 of them that I've there done. There you go. Sounds good to me. Everybody support this guy. He's busy guy. Support Neil Turbin. Legend, the metal voice. And Bro- the Brooklyn Blast Furnace blasting your brain's out. That's it. I'm All over the place over here. That's right. <laughs> Blasting you across the internet and the universe and the, the uh, yeah. The, and whole. the whole deal. Neil, thank you so much, my man. Be safe and we'll definitely be in touch. Well, you gotta send, I'm going to hit you up. You're going to send me uh, crucifixation. So we're, gonna, we're ending this with keep the fire and then crucifixation. Excellent. Listen. Listen to this guy. Cheers, man. man. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thank you so much, brother. All my best. Later, man.